maybe we lost some opportunities because we didn't pursue certain things heavier than we could have. But I'm also glad that I don't feel like we left a bad taste in anybody's mouths for like having to, you know, deal with us or, you know, being around us or us being around them on tour. Just all time low. Probably still find fucking CDs in that bus. No, that was that was obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, like leaving CDs all over their bus. Other than that. The best part of that was getting uh, Alex Gaskarth to come and meet Scott while he was passed out drunk in the van. And he knows <laughs> the best part of that was that he didn't fucking believe us for half of the next day until we finally went, all right, dickhead, here's the picture. Wait, wait a minute. Let me see that. Are you fucking kidding me? I can't fucking believe this. That was fucking great. We're always collaborating at all times. With the universe. Nicholas Walters, Wade Walters' firstborn son. I am. You're on the podcast. I'm on a podcast, my first podcast. No, that's not true. You did that one with Phillips with Jordan. Oh, well, that was like a video cast that we started. That's what this is. This is better. This is better than corporate that podcast was like work. Work, though. This is not work. I guess it is for you, but. That was a fuck off project that we started in his basement and ended up doing it at work. Um, you said you wanted to come on the podcast. What did you want to come on and talk about? What did you have that you wanted to talk about? I don't know. I don't have that much to talk about. Then why the fuck would you come on a conversational, freeform, long podcast? I don't know. <laughs> what uh, What do we got good to talk about? Well, we just went and saw Blink-182 last week. We did. And it was amazing. I just saw the uh, the Hershey set is live. Like that whole set is on TV right now. I started yeah. watching it the other day. I was like, takes me back to three days ago. There's two different channels that have it literally like straight from the front row. And I've watched both of them whole way through. Yeah. yeah. You watch the one where Mark asked them to turn off the pyro while they were playing uh, the no, song in I the did, dark. I didn't see that. It was so, <laughs> I guess it's like so hot that he was like, uh, the, I'll never talk to you again. He's like, He's like singing like, turn off the fucking fire, <laughs> turn the fucking him. fire off. He disappeared during the first song. And I, I kept asking Aaron, I was like, do you see him? Like, where the fuck did he go? And then because I couldn't tell. But from that video, you can see something was wrong with his ears. ears yeah. And he pulled them and then he disappeared. And I was sitting in my room and I was like, oh, that's where he went. And Aaron <laughs> comes in. She's like, what? It's nothing. I figured it out, though. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's the funny thing about uh, in-ears, right? Like, it affects you at any level. If it's not if it's not in your ears the way you want it to, you're just kind of boned. There's, like, not much you can do. We had that problem at the last show. Yeah. We had, like, I don't know what it was. Something about, like, the, I think, like, the click was not loud enough in Steve and Nate's ears. And then we didn't have um, – I, I think I'm going to pull the live feed of everybody playing – for everybody just because it's confusing steve when he solos is like he lets it linger a little long which works in the live setting if everybody else slams back in because he kind of fills out this wall of sound before like the moment comes back in yeah and but the problem is if it's if you're hearing it in your ear and he's not doing something that trails out and is meant like boss used to like end and like his you know a dive bomb would end on the beat yeah and so like whenever steve is kind of like letting it linger and letting that tail kind of continue to roll out it uh it can mess us up with our timing for sure especially if the click's not loud enough yeah 
but for him, he was probably just didn't have like he couldn't hear himself as well or something. I would imagine for Mark. That was my first time using in-ears and it was a game changer. If you're not using in-ears, use them. Yeah, it's weird because we got the PA system at practice space and now it's like I I feel like we don't even need it because we can just do it in our ears and hear everything we want to hear. Yeah. But I thought about building out the set so that the actual like perfectly tracked instrumentation, if you want to hear what the guitar is supposed to be doing in a spot, you could have that feed from the actual track. It's just a waveform that's playing, so it's not really taking up much processing power or anything. Yeah. And as I'm about to retire my MacBook Pro, I think that's just going to become the band MacBook Pro until we upgrade to another interface because we have the PreSonus right now. But we're at a point now where we could upgrade to like a 16-channel uh, PreSonus for ins and outs for sends. But yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a game changer. I definitely liked having them. Being able to hear yourself live. Like actually hear yourself. Because before I thought I could hear myself when you can just kind of <laughs> like barely hear it coming through and you're like, yeah, I'm good. And then you put these things in and you can like actually hear fucking everything. And it's amazing. Jason was just talking yesterday. So I did the 21st episode yesterday with uh, Sam Gilman from First to Eleven, uh, Jason from I Hear Zero, and uh, Jordy. And he was saying that he feels disconnected when he wears his in-ear, so he'll usually pop on out because he can't hear the crowd. And the, oh, yeah. the workaround that I found for that it was the one that All Time Low used. They usually had like a couple of mics facing towards the crowd. And so if you have that, you can actually hear what's going outward, you know, whatever is coming out from the crowd. You can actually get a feed of like the crowd noise in your ears. That's pretty smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like especially like if you're stage left, right, and uh, Nate stage right, he might want to only hear the people that are <laughs> right in front of him so he doesn't hear everything because then he's not going to know who he's listening to. But like if you can kind of. I mean, I've never really had that problem because. I mean, we've never really played in front of an all-time low crowd that size, at least. But if we were, that would be one thing that definitely, like, fucked with me. Because that's kind of, like, my thing when we play is I am, like, with the crowd. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We are one. Your crowd control. So if I'm, like, cut off from that, like, I would pull them right away. Yeah. But I've, we've never had to really deal with that. Yeah, um, I talked to... Sam about having first to 11 come down and play here in the ball whenever the students are back and doing a show with us and them and uh, my hero zero possibly because they have some originals that they can play. And so if they wanted to, we could do like the bill, like um, my hero zero relic cards first to 11, you know, fill out that show. And I guarantee it'll sell more tickets than like any of the last two that we've, we outsold yeah. the headliner in the last two shows that we played. So it's like, yeah, that'd be fun. Um, and then I was recently talking to – I didn't get to tell you this yet. I, so I was talking to Alex Lofton about Spitfire, and we were uh, – I mean, who knows if any of this will happen. So like me saying it is probably jinxing it. But one of the things that he said was, I think I'm going to pitch you guys to better noise music. Oh, yeah. And so – oh, yeah, we did kind of talk about A that. Little. Yeah. So um, – which would be cool just because it might be like infrastructure in place to help us with like release structure and getting stuff out. But, I mean, even still, even still withstanding that, Spitfire is basically slated for a radio push this upcoming fall. And then that's why I want to have, like, four more 
singles done before we, we get to that point. And we have like the demos folders just stacked with like 20 different demos. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, every one of these has a lot of great foundation. And some of these are ones that I would want to start on sooner than later, or right away. So I'm just doing like co-writing and sitting down and just kind of feeling out what I want to do for each of the the next series of songs. But I'd like to have one done by the end of the month, like at least being, I don't care if they're done with mix and master, as long as they're being sent out for mix and master by the end of the, the month. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of bangers in there. I mean, Spitfire just kind of stands alone. I think the intro is what's yeah. going to screw us for like radio play maybe. So we may have to come up with like a radio edit version where that intro that the long tail intro isn't there and it just slams right into that oh, intro yeah. that's that's an easy one yeah but uh so that that's basically the move so what's been going on you have you listened to the podcast with your dad anytime recently um a little while ago it hasn't been that long i don't know how long it's been i've watched it like two or three times can't believe he's gone yeah, that's a rough one. They say that losing your dad as a guy, like, fucks you up. Uh, it has not been easy. I feel like you, I mean, you were already kind of without your, I mean, your dad is obviously, he was the patriarch for sure. Yeah. But now that role has definitely fallen to you. <laughs> and like, yeah, it's kind of weird, too, because I'm an adult child. <laughs> yeah. 17-year-old dad. You're a teen mom, dude. Yeah. That's a lot. It's definitely been a life-changing experience. It is, without a doubt, the hardest thing that I have ever had to deal with. But, I mean, it's a part of life. I don't think it's as much that he's gone. It's more of the last three years of his life, and then especially the last three months, were not that easy yeah. or great for him. And that was not easy to watch him have to go through. Yeah. And it's rough. Even knowing your dad's sense of humor, right? Like, even knowing yeah. how, like, he handled everything. Like, he literally texted me. He was like, Mel, make sure you get your tickets to the C. Wade Walters <laughs> yeah. before he's dead yep. tour. I was like, Wade. Everything's a joke. And he put a smile on for the entire thing. What a freaking absolute savage. Yeah. He was a beast. Wade Walters, we got a song coming out for you in August. I'm really excited about. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to put that out. That's gonna. I almost kind of regret that I don't have it planned to come out earlier in the summer. But I wanted to have things that we're releasing. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to slam the algorithm every like two weeks. And that's what we're already doing with the Legends Never Die remixes at the end of the month. Yeah. And then the Forget Me cover is. I think this episode will drop after it's out, but the Forget Me cover is right. That's the 15th. And so we have the 15th, the 28th. So like not even two weeks between releases there. Of what month? June, this month. And what's releasing on the 28th? The Legends Never Die remix okay. that Nukage did. And, uh, and then we have, what else? We have... Uh, the Bad Habits remix. I don't know if you've listened to the latest mix of that. I can send that to you. But that's uh, that's coming out in July. And then I had your My Sun Sunshine slated for August. And, I mean, I honestly kind of feel like I could between. That's a good summer jam. 
I think you're my sunshine. Of, I think a lot of people when they hear that are going to be surprised by that one. I was surprised by it when I heard it for the first time. I sent it to uh, my siblings to show to like their like all my little nieces and nephews, and they they loved it. And I was like, that's cool. Like I I, I just what's funny is I don't know the audience that that song's going to hit. And it's not like it's a conventional version of the cover. Like it's not a direct cover of like Johnny Cash's version. Yeah. It's not a direct cover of the original. It's just sort of like our interpretation on it. And uh, so it's fun. And it's not even that long. I think the song's only like two and a half, three minutes long. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> that I've listened to it has kind of went, what, what is this? <laughs> and they go, this is awesome. Yeah. This is so awesome. Yeah. So I, part of me wants to kind of maybe shift it if we could have something else done and ready to go for an august release that's not an original i would be down to bump that date up earlier so that it could come out in enough time for people to enjoy it during the summer months when the yeah. sun is really shining um but yeah i just got to kind of go through the process of doing that it's like literally everything we do is such a a process like from the start of the you know picking the song that we want to do if it's a cover and and if it's an original, that's even worse because obviously we take way longer with them. Yeah. But the idea of going through and saying like, okay, we got this song. This is how we're going to express it. How do we take this and make it our own? And then we do that. And then we get to the point where it's, you know, everybody's going through their back and forth with remote uh, studio setups. And then we take it and we get together to film it. And then after we film it, I have to come together and edit it. Uh, then there's coming up with the album artwork. And then after I edit the main music video, I got to cut all the social clips out. So we have ones to post for socials and then uh, and then for, you know, for reels and, and TikTok and uh, YouTube shorts. And it's just like it's so much work that goes into just that amount of releases. And we could technically just do some covers and not do videos for them. But I, I think I like one. I like for the canvas sake. I like having that visual component on Spotify that yeah. we can have like a clips from the music video are in that. But it's one of those things where it's like I, I honestly feel like because we have so many different. There are so many covers we have in our back catalog of covers that we've started. Like Nate and I, it's like it's like, hey, let's try this one or hey, let's do this one. Like we have a Deftones My Own Summer cover. Yeah, I've looked in the folder and there's ones in there that i didn't even know we had and i'm going holy shit <laughs> why, why aren't we doing these yeah well at one point it was like oh we maybe we felt like we missed the window for getting a song out for something that would have like helped push our numbers when that song was still yeah. charting or pushing but there's some in there that are just like classics like we have the smells like teen spirit cover and that one i feel like people are gonna love or hate so that could be good yeah, or bad for us because it's a, not like it's uh you know it's not so different of an interpretation there's so much that's real about it but that was spawned from when we were in indonesia and we were in that oh, strip mall yeah. area remember and then there were all these different amazing cover bands like in indonesia this like mall complex area that we were in there was uh like stages every like 100 yards and you and you could like yeah, walk like but and every band was playing there. something different there was one that was playing like reggae and then there was one that was playing like classic rock and there was one that was playing like hair metal and the one that was like the classic rock stage. As soon as they started playing Smells Like Teen Spirit, like, I don't know, we all just got up out of our chairs and like went into the crowd and started like crowd surfing and mm -hmm. just being ridiculous. That was so much fun. And we were like, it's so crazy that that song has been out for, you know, close to 25 years. And we just didn't like, 
I don't think we ever could have fully appreciated it. It was big when it came out, yeah. and it's still so big. Like internationally, it's like you hear the intro to that song, and everybody's just immediate. If you're into that song, if you're into that genre or that era of music, you're like, oh shit! <laughs> and like everybody just went nuts. We were like, well, I mean, there. I think they've probably are considered or will be considered at least. I think, in my opinion, we have bands that for like our generation are now. <laughs> like legacy bands like Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and, you know, those. And I, I think constantly about music that came out while we're growing up and you look at those and go like, what, where are the legacy bands here? And well, they were also kind of like stoic and weird, right? Like Bush yeah. was always kind of like weird and standoffish in a way. So it's like they had their era in the late nineties, early two thousands. And then it's like, where did they go? Yeah. And meanwhile, like some of those songs were epic soundtracks all the way through my college years and then like songs that I still like to revisit now. And so uh, Nate and I did – we started a cover of Everything Zen and that was a song that I always thought like ripped. And Nate put his spin on it. Oh, I did hear that. Dirk's got to go through and do his drums and make his adjustments that he wants to and then – and then we just got to go and get them out. And so like those are ones that I would love to be able to get together and do but – it's a tall order for all those music videos because even on these last ones, Alex Goot helped me big time because he was like, I only need like three or four shots full take of me going through the song and I'll be able to make the video work. As long as the framing works and the shot works, then I'm happy with it. And so it kind of became this thing where for these last videos, I was like, look, if everybody knows it, this should be really easy. I just got to knock them out. And Dirk is the only one who's like so inconsistent between his takes. Some of them he's like super – some of them – by the, the third take that we did of him, I think I did four of him. He was like so energetic and big energy and movement. And so that's great to use in like choruses and parts where things are really, really big. But then whenever he's like playing, he looks like he's just going through the motions and not like really into it in some of the other clips. Oh, well, that last one you sent – the one you sent on the band thread, he looks great. Well, because I'm picking is. all the best of his best out. But then he also does this thing where, like, he'll forget that there's not a ghost note in there where he thinks he put one or would like to have put one. And so he'll play a ghost note and it's not in the song. And so I can't use that clip and it's otherwise a good clip. So I'm like, damn it, I got to, like, cut around that. Or uh, I think there's, like, a part that he co he couldn't remember how he did it. Because, we, I mean, we made the song, like, a month and a half ago and – we did, we were just finally getting around to shooting the video like what uh, two weeks or so ago, yeah. and so he was like oh, unsure yeah, of kept, how to get to that. He kept doing it over and over again. Yeah, and he kept messing up like the build up part. I was like, dude, like this part you have to nail this because I've, I want to be able to show this part because it's a big drum part of the song. But if you don't nail it, I can't put it in there. I'm gonna have to put something else in there. And then uh, Steve was the same way. I was like, Steve, are you? Do you know what you're playing? I was like, I don't know. I can't hear what he's playing, so I don't know if he's actually playing along with the song or if he knows what the song, how the song was written. And so I'm like, I've been using him sparingly in the the video because I'm like, there's certain parts where he, yeah, he is playing the right thing, and then there's some where he's like got his hands on the top part of the fret and he's playing this way. I'm like, bro, where do you hear that in the song? <laughs> like, where is that happening? So it's like. But it was, you know, his first round of doing music videos, and he said it looks great. He's really excited about it. I sent it to him, too, so he could check it out. Uh, playing bass. You can fake it the whole way. Or am I? <laughs> no, you're good. You actually fuck, you play along. You, I, I, I mean, for you, it's because you're finger-picking. 
I have to watch your fingers to make sure that they're rhythmically in place. And there's this yeah. weird disconnect when you watch music where like, even when you watch somebody on stage, you're watching them play, but there is that slight delay between what their fingers are actually doing and what's making it to the house PA and then out the speakers. It's relatively fast, but it's not so streamlined that it's zero latency, right? Yeah. And then I was thinking about this when we were at Blink-182, I was like, man, how do you offset? You can't offset the audio that much to keep up with where the video's at for these projector screens that you've got going on. And these yeah. cameras have a feed that they're taking and, and, you know, manipulating. So you would notice it like, I mean, I would notice from, you know, years of editing music videos now that I'm like, ah, oh, Travis is like, visually, he is like four frames behind right now. I never even really thought about that. That's pretty crazy. And you don't think about it when you're watching it live because you're like, oh, you're just like in the moment. And it's yeah. close enough. You just kind of I think everybody kind of accepts it as like a natural lag. Yeah. But like for the for the podcast right here, this is like in this closed loop setup. Basically, there's six frames of difference between the audio and where the video is. So I have to actually disconnect and, or unlink the, the audio from the video file and shift the, the video file like six frames back and then relink it to be able to have the audio our lips match up with what we're saying and so it's like that's something that's stupid that i have to do every time and i've tried to mess with the stereo delay that i have set up to be able to adjust it down to the milliseconds so that it actually like delays to the exact right place it's supposed to but for some reason i just can't get it to i don't know what that's all about that sounds extremely tedious it is a little bit yeah that's kind of what i used to do for like the phillips thing but not on that scale it was one, two, one, two, one, two, done. Yeah. Well, and so now you wouldn't even have to really do that. Like I've been thinking about Alex wants me to come down and do some work with him here in the next like two or three weeks. And if I get down to Nashville, I'm like, okay, all right, I'll do that. But how am I going to handle, we've got, uh, I, I don't want to take like the whole rig down if I drive down and he'll, he usually will fly me out, which is obviously way more like cost effective for me. But, um, if I fly down, I can't take like all of the live streaming yeah, gear. Yeah, going to be a pain in the ass. So Adobe just released, uh, I think from Firefly is what it's called, where, is it, Carlos, is it Firefly? Yeah. Is that the multicam, like, or the the podcast, Adobe podcast Adobe one? podcast and then there's Adobe Firefly. Where now it'll basically like, as long as the input audio source, I think, is connected to each individual person, um, it will detect who's talking and cut to that camera. Like just automatically. That's pretty awesome. And make your cuts automatically. That's cool. So it's like it almost eliminates the need wow. for everything else. And so I'm gonna I'd like to get familiar with that setup because if I do any remote podcasts where I drive somewhere, like if I go out to Denver, I'd love to be able to go and do one with Gekko and do one with uh Kenan while I'm out there. And then if That'd I go awesome. to Nashville and do one with Alex and any other of the YouTubers that he wants to round up to do the podcast, I can actually just take, you know, tripods which I can pack down. I, I've, I've bought like travel tripods that are light and easy to pack down and then just go down and do it that way. But yeah, it's just such a, it's such a, a hassle, but it's like this necessary evil that's a part of doing anything in any business. But specifically if you're in music, there's just so much you have to do. I regret that we didn't have anybody film any of the last two sets because I feel like we never have any like good new yeah. active live footage of us because we're not playing out as much. We've just been writing. Yeah, so, especially like, in that place. That's like my favorite place, or at least it was. I mean, I don't I don't want to say anything negative about it on a podcast, but it's not the crowbar anymore. Uh, but I still love play. It's like that stage. It's just that area. I love it. 
Yeah, it's got legacy. We've got an old. We've got a sticker still hanging up there in the yeah, basement. The only, only once. Oh no, uh, us and Hey Mercedes. Hey Mercedes, that's yep. so funny. Shout out Hey Mercedes for lasting the test of time. Damone. Damone Atkinson. Oh yeah, I should. We should have taken a picture and sent that to him. I bet he'd shit if he saw that. Uh, we do. Somebody took a picture. Nate. Nate Fulmer took a picture for us. We should have him take a send that picture to us. Uh, it might be in the list of uh, photos he sent us. He sent us like a link to a bunch of photos from that show. I'll have to go through and take a look. Yeah, I don't I don't remember if it was in there or not. I feel like I would have saved that one. We're working on uh, the music video uh, environment for an Unreal Engine music video for Spitfire. And he just brought on a buddy of his who's going to, like, help bring the world together and, and do it. So I'm really excited that, like, the aesthetic of that video is really is finally going to match, like, what the vision for what we have is. That would be cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. The only the only bitch of it's going to be I'm going to have to go and film green screen for everybody. So I'm going to have to go at some point, to not today, but, like, sometime between now and us when we do it, I need to build, like, a platform that I can sit Dirk on so that he's not, like, on the ground, but paint that, like, green screen green. And Ooh, that'll be cool. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that like we don't have to do it that way. I could just roll out like excess green screen and just set him on top of it. But what I'd like to do is have him elevated, lock off on the tripod, like how it's going to be. Um, I think like in future music videos, I'll do more motion tracking where I'll have to put like X's and squares and circles and stuff like that on the background of the green screen so that if I move, I'm able to kind of keep up with that in post. But really, the easiest way to do it is just to kind of keep your shots more linear. So they're like constant yeah. zooms ins and zooms outs and so, zoom in and zoom ins, zooms, zoom ins zooms. and zoom outs. And uh, and then you just kind of like have to stack them in the world where they are. And then whatever happens when you move in the world, it's like you kind of for some reason, I don't know why it is. I think if you shoot with a long enough lens, you kind of get away with it because you can't tell that. Oh, it's shifting slightly to the left, but there's no parallax that's happening because you can do the parallax in the world. Like you can have the world shifting behind them. And really the visual component of looking at the person that you're filming doesn't change that much. The angle would only yeah. just slightly change. And so I would love to get to that degree where we do that level of it. But for this first one, just to have like a hype, extra world-class, large looking music video, I'm not going to worry about that as much. But getting through this first process of a green screen on real engine music video will help me figure out what we want to do next for the next round of singles and yeah. spitfire just deserves one that is like yeah insane really and epic yeah it'll be the first time we get to do that we've been talking about doing that for a while we've shot some green screen stuff before that we were going to use and then we just never got it well it wasn't done the way oh, that yeah, i would have done did. it either well, i would have done it a couple of different ways like when we had that entire background of the evolution arts center green screened the problem was we weren't far enough away and lighting it evenly on that far of a stretch is such a pain in the ass but that's such a crucial part of the green screen process is having like an even balanced lighting across the entire thing i have this green screener app that i use that helps show like within like uh if you get it to where it's evenly lit within like you'll see these bands where there's like a bright band in the middle that's the brightest where the, it, everything's hitting and then it starts to fall off a little bit. The next band is like a little bit darker and the next band's a little bit darker. And when you look at it like that, if there's like four bands, that's like not going to be a fun green. You could green screen key it, no problem, but it's not going to be as clean. Whereas if you get far enough away, the subject far enough away from the green screen, there's none of that 
not as much of that green bounce that kind of comes off of the back of the green screen and bounces onto your subject. And then you can also turn around and say, okay, well now I can get a clean key. Great. If I balance the lighting on the actual green screen that I, you know, I click one color and it's going to pull out 98% of the green screen that's behind it. So you've keyed out most of it. And then you just build in a little bit of space in the, the keying space where you, you know, you have some extra tolerance for like, a few shades brighter and a few shades darker and it'll wipe it all out and be perfectly clean. The symbols was hard too because we had Dirk Shine's symbols and so like every time he would hit it, the green would reflect on that. So like you have to have enough distance that it's like barely able to kind of reflect on the symbols and the other factor is you've got to shoot with a really high shutter speed because you like this would be my diagnosis for how to shoot really good music video green screen content would be to have a high shutter speed so that every still frame is a sharp image. So when you're keying the motion blur, there's not a lot of, there's like a a wash that kind of happens with like the way that your hands move and stuff like that. And we, you know, in a high energy rock music video, you're going to have a problem where, you know, if everybody's moving really fast and you can't keep them still, that space in between them moving that blurs because they're moving so fast or if Nate's jumping or spinning or where you are or whatever, it just makes it so that there's like, it'll key out the green, but it will replace it with this like gray. And there's no way to really fix yeah. that. And so like you want to have basically, I, my my idea would be you shoot with a long lens far away on a tripod and then you have a high shutter speed so that everything they do is perfectly still. But then you have to match that in the environment that you're doing as well. Like, okay, here's what the shutter – when you set these things up in like After Effects or in the, the world, you choose what the shutter speed you're shooting at is. Yeah. And so whatever I do when I shoot that, I need to do everything <laughs> needs to be the same. It's got to be white balance to be the same color temperature. It's got to be you know, the exact same shutter speed for everybody. So I'm thinking it like if I'm shooting a 24P music video, I would do it – I would do it at like – 320 or 350 like shutter speed so that like that's one 350th of a second it's like any movement that happens that fast is like going to be relatively still it'll eliminate a lot of that motion blur and then doing it with a long lens means if i can you know up the aperture to like f4 or 5 or whatever you'll be a completely sharp object and the green screen will really be kind of like faded behind you. But while you're perfectly in shape and, and the reason why I would do this little riser box for Dirk to be on was that it would be a platform for everybody else to have to stay on. Yeah. And so if everybody stays in that space and then in the world building side of unreal, it is that way. But then I thought about, Oh, you know what? Maybe Nate, Nate and uh, Nick and Steve would like to be able to put their feet up on like a riser or something. So it was like, maybe I can like build that riser and then find a way to, uh, through the inside of it, like thread a screw through with like a wing nut or whatever and tighten it so that you guys could actually put your feet up on top of something. And then in the world, that might look like you put your foot up on a rock in yeah. this world or on this like burning debris or rubble that's like. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Yeah. So that's one of my construction projects for the next upcoming weeks. I feel like nobody knows what we do <laughs> behind the scenes outside of like <laughs> releasing music. We, I feel like we duck out for a while. We haven't released anything since we did the I Like You cover in September. And maybe that was October even. I feel like it was September or October with First to Eleven. Um, I mean, we filmed it right in the like in August. August. Yeah. So, yeah, right around there. And I remember it being a couple weeks out until they were able to get it into their release schedule. So, yeah, I mean, like, there's so much that goes into it. That was, like, the last thing we released. But then we started really kind of hammering away at – we had the show, so we started rehearsing. 
we played that show and I was like, man, it would be really great if this song or this song that we've been working on were done. It would be great to play them live. And so we started working on them over the winter. And now, you know, Spitfire is done. We have like the final for it. I've got actually I got the email from uh, Bert from Chunk. He sent me the final the it mastered stems. Great. Yeah. So I want to send the mastered stems to Lukage and have him do an EDM remix of Spitfire yeah. too. So like we can have that ready to go along with the release in the fall. And music video will be for the original, but then, yeah. you know, it almost, it's almost like you release each single as an EP. So it's like whatever remixes we want to do. So I thought about reaching out to like different like uh, rap artists and being like, hey, this bridge is like a solo. But if you want to put like a verse on here, if you want to put like a bridge in here, where oh, you rap over and do something epic, it's like just do it to do it. And then any one of them that want to come and film a music video, we can get them to come up. Film their their one-off film of the music video would just be a, an exact same setup to do for the music video, and then you know it's just integrating them into a scene that either uh, no one was in or that I was in, and replace me with them, and then you know put them in there. But we do a good job, I think, of kind of being ahead of the curve on a lot of things, and then also like just trying to be consistent with how we show up with like our releases. Like I don't think we've ever dipped below a certain bar once we've hit a threshold for like the quality that we want to go for. Yeah. I mean, we don't ever, we definitely don't ever half-ass it, which is why we're not putting out videos every week or every two weeks, you know? And now like Alex's perspective is like, if you're releasing it, if you're waiting too long to release just because you're trying to make it like perfect, like nobody cares. We're the only ones that care. And to some degree, I think that's true. But I think there's also something for like quality control within your uh, your group, right? Like, Yeah, I think as I mean, I'm guilty of that terribly. It's like the artist curse, no matter what you're doing. I mean, I start stuff in my room all the time and I just sit there. I get to a point and I go, OK, what am I going to do now? And. Like I just have 50 ideas and so I'll do one, two, three, four. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. This is what I want to do. And then I'll look at it again and 10 more ideas come up and I go, I am not done. I don't even, I haven't even begun yet. It just never ends. And I rearrange my room every once a month because I get it there and I'm like, no, no, I got to add this here. It's never, never complete. Yeah, it's just like nonstop process of refining all the time. Yeah, you need to, I guess, as a band, uh, I guess maybe we are probably pretty good at this. As a whole, we have to get to a point where we know that it has met our standard and we can probably do this and that and this more with it. But we know that it is at this point where we need it to be and you just kind of have to like cut the cord and call it done. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm at this point now where with the music videos, I'm like, I it's I really need to. I had to have I had to have Mike shoot me for my scenes because I Nate had to bounce and Mike was willing to come over, and I uh, it, it's hard to shoot around me because I didn't shoot wide enough. I don't think like I wanted to have him relatively closer for framing. What I should have done was been like, hey, be a little bit wider, get the right angles, and try to stay as close to keeping me in frame as possible. And then he was like, man, this rig is really heavy. I was like, yeah, it's like 29 pounds and I'm holding it with two arms. And if I, you know, I do a couple of music video shoots in a row, like your elbows and your like shoulders and stuff hurt. Like, you, yeah. you know, it's, it's heavy. It's basically isometrics for, you know, a performative music video for, you know, a solid, I don't know. So we do multiple takes of each person 
I end up with like 27 different tracks between getting, you know, now with Steve doing videos, it's like I've got an extra three or four of him, you know, three or four of you, three and four of Nate. Nate's doing screen. I did some screen takes of him this last one. So he's got his three or four for that. And he's got three or four for his performance side of things. It's just like so many tracks that come through, which is great because it gives me options and it should make it easier to be able to cut through. But the problem is like not everybody is like on when they're performing by themselves. Yeah. We definitely perform differently when we're all together. And yeah. so not having the group shot to kind of like cut to makes it really difficult. So I would like to get to, you know, I would like to get another cover in before the end of the summer so that I could maybe bump You Are My Sunshine into July and then kick uh the bad habits remix to like the end of july and then have that new cover ready to roll for august so it really just kind of takes like finding one that we want to do and using that as the means of like having that be that later release date and so if, even if we don't do some music videos for some of them i thought it might be cool to go through and do a bunch of the songs that we have that are basically done i just have to either retract vocals to or track vocals to and send it out and get it mixed and mastered and then get them on the slate for release so that they're at least releasing and going out. But it's like without that extra visual component to post about and share it, it's yeah. like, it makes it really difficult to kind of do something. So it's like kind of necessity at I this point the, to, to the do it. Only one that we haven't done a video for is blinding lights. Yeah. Yeah. We should just go back and do a video for it. It started to slip in views finally after like three finally. years. Yeah. It's surprised. Like it got overtaken by uh, out of the woods and Royals again. That's such a, random one that was just number one yeah but it was good it was totally good i mean we, that was a uh, first cover that we had bert mix yeah hats off to bert yeah boy is good bertrand ponce ponset ponce it's french don't fucking know french yeah alias studio he's the guy who mixes and masters like all of our originals um and dude he's just so good he's yeah. so good we did this tour I think I told you this story, but like I was with our last night on the first tour that they did with them in like 20, 2012. I think it was after we got off a of warp tour that year. I did the summer tour with our last night for their age yeah. of ignorance tour. And then they did a fall tour with woe was me and chunk, no captain chunk and a couple other bands. I can't remember who else was on that. Secrets was on that tour. Um, and so we were staying with their dad in where the hell does his dad live? Arizona. Arizona, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, in the, the Mesa, Arizona area. And uh, Bert was like showing us his original mixes for their first album and then the mixes that the label released. Oh, yeah. I and I remember listening this. to his demos and being like, they're why better. didn't they listen to your, why didn't they release your demos? They're like, well, they wanted us to have it mixed and mastered by this producer because if we didn't do that, it's kind of like we're not really playing the game. And, and so it was about whose names we could have attached to our records because he did this record and this record. Yeah. And so fans of those bands might be more willing to give our record a chance. But the reality was his demos just sounded so much better. Yep. So I, I knew I was like, at some point we're going to do originals and that's who I'm going to send him to, to get a mixed and mastered. And he was, he's been working with us for years now. It's crazy to think we've been working with him for, you know, eight years now. Wow. <laughs> it's stupid. It's Damn. like time flies, man. Um, and then nine years ago, Yesterday, we released the Trust music video. Isn't that wild? <laughs> wow, that is insane. We uh, we had had a farmer that allowed us to go out in his barren field and set a piano, a piano on fire. fire. And we had uh, uh, Kira Riley, the uh, exotic dancer, was doing like a fire dance oh, and like yeah. set it on fire and everything. And then we, we did the music video with her. That was so crazy. It was such an experience. Cause we, put, we put a lot of effort in that music video. And it was like a narrative style music video 
And we had to have that guy, Tom, I think his name was, film it. Yeah. And uh, did that and another one, but we never did anything. We didn't release one. the other one. Yeah, the other one was for we have we have two songs that we didn't release that were I think we need to redo. That would be great to have done. There were both of those are good songs that I would want to have as like singles to to put out. I don't know if they would they they're not going to compete with like Spitfire, but to reimagine uh, the one and the only, and to reimagine on my way. And yeah, just kind of keep keep a lot of those like songs together. Those songs ripped, and they were a lot of fun. And they're catchy melodies, like good energetic songs to do. I'd probably take another pass at the, the lyrics and the vocals and stuff like that. But those are songs that like we could release the versions that we have right now as is, and just have them out and put them out as they are, and I just mean, call it a at day. This point, those songs are real close to ten years. No, they are ten years old. They were in the same batch with Trust. We yeah. did Trust in one and the only in the same trip. They went back and did the other three in March. Yeah, we did. Wow, you remember it was March. We did uh, On My Way, Wanderlust, and what was the other one? Um, Hands of Fate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we did a music video for Hands of Fate, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny because Zoe's it. She's working for KCF Technologies now. And so there's a couple dudes that work there that are like, they discovered that I've been doing these videos for them, and they were like, "Oh, he's in a band." And they were like, "She's like, yeah, I was a long time ago. I was in a music video. It's just for showing the music video, and you see, like, you know, her whole family. Yeah, right? Zach's like perfectly encapsulated as like you know a six year old, and now yeah. he's like, I can't. I feel like he can't be far away from driving at this point, which is going to be insane. Yeah, that's crazy too. <sighs> Getting old. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to break into doing. Uh, Southern rock or country, I think, in the next like couple years, if we don't, <laughs> uh, we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah, we got we got a couple more years. We'll us. hit the cover band scene first. Yeah, before yeah. Before we yeah. do the country. Yeah, there's a lot of money to be made there. Got to be, got to be real good to be country. Yeah. Have you ever any thought to moving to Nashville? Do you think uh, you guys would be willing to make the jump down that way? I mean, I would pretty much move wherever. Honestly, uh, I think. The big thing for Erin is her, like her whole family lives in North Carolina. So I think that is like the big one for her. And for me, like, I, I think at this point we've both said if we aren't going to live in State College, I don't care to live in Pennsylvania. Right, but right, right. Outside of that, like, I've always wanted to live in California just for like even a year, just to live there and just be out there for a year and take it in and then <laughs> before half of it's underwater yeah, yeah yeah we just said that like two days ago we were watching something and then move back here and i like north carolina i have been to nashville i like it there i like a lot of the east coast actually so i don't yeah. mind where i end up as long as i am with aaron and you guys are at least relatively close. Right. Uh, that works. But I don't know. I would move to Nashville. I would love to do. Uh, so I'm thinking about doing an investment property up here so that I have like this is like the way I can always come up here and have like a home base. And then I don't know if I'll rent it out so much as I could make the mortgage for the place in a year, just getting, you know, Airbnb it out for the football games. And so what I would like to do is get a property where I can do that, get it booked out for the year, know the weekends that I can't be here, Airbnb it out the rest of the time of the year, like whenever I want, and then just have some blackout dates for whenever like I come back into town, if I, if I decide to move away. And uh, 
I think it'd just be smart to do it that way. There's just so much money to be made in doing that, and you can essentially always rely on paying off the mortgage yeah, by doing well, that. We live in this place is basically a gold mine for that. Yeah, I mean, real estate property value is going up constantly, so there's like no no two ways about it. It just is like if you get a property here, you're getting your investment monies worth back at the you know whenever you decide to flip or sell or do whatever yeah. you're going to do. But I would just keep it. I think you could just make the money and. Yeah. pocket some of it and have it as passive income. If I go anywhere else and I have enough passive income from that to be able to turn around and pay for like my rent in another location where I'm living, it's game over. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't mind traveling. I like traveling. My only, uh, my only concern is how we continue to like what I do to get everybody able to film their own parts so that I don't have to travel to film them if I need to, or yeah. which is fine. Like we're at the point now where like I could just invest in another camera and yeah, another I lens or two and is, just send them to like everybody to have in their spot and then just yeah. build out similar visual locations. Be like, hey, this is what you got to go do. This is what you got to go build. I mean, look this will be your uh, remote studio setup. COVID. <laughs> Bands figured out how to do that. Uh, Feldman, they were recording the a bunch of those songs. I, I think they I forget what they called them, like the COVID sessions or whatever it was. But they with Travis. Is that when Travis was no, doing it? It was. Uh, oh, MXP or uh, the dude from NoFX. No, it's Mike Herrera is in the band. Oh, that's right. He's in the band now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Phil Sneed is a guitar player. And they, but they each did like their own parts from their homes. And Feldman was in his studio, which I believe is in his home. But he's in his studio. Uh, and the rest of them are in like their little parts of their house. And it's kind of cool because you get to see like, a little bit of their personalities behind them because all of their like little music rooms or areas are like a little bit different and have like little <laughs> knickknacks here. The whole here music and there. studio is basically like the musician's version of a man cave. I, yeah, <laughs> it's literally like the music cave for musicians, you know? Yeah, that just have to be yeah. that. That'd be so the angle I thought to that was really cool, but that's, I'm sure that's not like the first that people were doing that, but that is very doable. And I think we could easily do that we just have to we don't have to do that now so right we don't yeah yeah yeah. i mean i enjoy having us all together like I, that's the yeah. one thing i don't want to lose is like us being able to get together to do like group music video shoots it's just hard with like uh like nate's son's in yeah. baseball right now and they're going to all-stars so he's like so my summer just got rocked a little bit he's like i'll be doing that for a while uh, yeah it turns out the older you get when your band hasn't made it to a certain point it gets Harder and harder to keep said band going, but we've done a pretty good job, I think. I think we've had a couple come to Jesus moments that really gave us no choice. Like when we like, like Boss yeah. was. That's a big one. He was so against a lot of the ideas that we had because they didn't align with where his like like musical values were. And so he had a very purist mentality in that regard. And so it made it difficult to get songs out that we could all agree on. And I think like we've, we we kind of have this like, you know, democratic vote when it comes to calling something done. Like, and, and I like that. Like to me, yeah. I'm happy, but it's not, it doesn't work whenever somebody is just like, oh, like I'm not doing this. Like this guitar is too chuggy or this yeah. is, it's well, like, I mean, come it's on. What are we like the, the blessing and the curse of having i mean boss is is the best guitar player i've ever met and we've come across a lot of musicians in our travels and yeah 
he's he's honestly probably the best musician that I have ever met. And that it's not just me talking about this kid that was in my band and grew up in the town I grew up in. Like you ask anybody that knew that kid from the time he is this big, they'd say there's two things about Aaron Bossinger, you know. He comes to your house, you're either playing guitar with him or you're watching Boss play guitar. Right, and right. Like before I even knew him, we had mutual friends. And I remember this kid, this little chunky fat kid showing up with his big guitar case of as big as him. And I'm going, who is this kid? This What is this? And that was Boss. And found out later, like, oh, that's Boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I get it now. My he, favorite thing about taking him places were like, okay, so we did the, we did on uh, the one and the only, and we did Trust at the same time. And in like January, I sent them to Ronnie because it was the first summer after Warp Tour. And I was like, hey, like you said, you might want to do some songs. Like these are two that we did. I thought these might be up your alley if you want to, you know, do some co-writing on them or co-production. And he loved them. And I thought he would like Trust because it was in 6-8 and it was kind of yeah. fucking kooky. And it had like that kind of, it had like a very like at that era, kind of like a falling in reverse kind of uh, vibe to it. And so when we flew out there, we went to this guy, Ryan, who was in a band called Runner Runner, who was like engineering the project for Ronnie and uh, just like putting him in different studio sessions. Even when we did the the, the record with uh, Bucket in Salt Lake, he was like, here's the dude who's making our record. He's like, wait, teach me this. Teach me this thing <laughs> yeah. about this Hogman. And what's this like Mixolydian? Everybody what's- that ever worked with him. And that was really cool, man, because it was like, you know, I think it was easy to consider him out because he's like not this like, oh, well, he's not 18 and he's not a hot young stud who plays guitar like that. So people kind of wanted to write him and us off in general because of that, just for like image purposes. But the reality was he was like one of the most musically gifted and talented people that would be in any of the rooms we would put somebody in. And it just didn't matter where we took. I remember taking him down to see, uh, we drove down to see Luke Holland was playing with Jason Richardson somewhere outside of Pittsburgh, some like small hole in the wall bar. And uh, the downstairs was packed with like 500 kids. And we go and he's watching. And then afterwards we go and, uh, you know, I introduced Jason Richardson to, to boss and, uh, they just start talking about guitars and talking shop. And like, you could tell that Jason was kind of like standoffish. Like, like, who is this guy? Like, how yeah. do you know? Like, how do you know this dude? And Luke only knew me from whenever he was out with the board alive. And I was doing, I did a couple tours with them with our last night. So like, he was like, oh, this is Johnny. And this is his guitar player in his band. And then like, you know, that there's this thing where you, when you meet people that are on tour and they bring a friend around who's like a musician and they're like not, uh, you know, signed or on this touring label or whatever, where it's like, oh, it's like this, he's, he plays guitar. Okay. But it was like you, if he actually like had a second to like let boss sit down and like kind of play with his gear, he was like, oh shit. Like as soon as his fingers started going on that thing, everybody was paying attention. So, yeah, so, I mean, like, we, it made it difficult for us to get music out after the record. And I think the part, the part of the reason was when we had all the control on our own and we weren't going somewhere to a studio to get it done, there was no deadline to get it finished. It was just like, well, I don't, let's change this, let's alter this, or this isn't where I want it to be. Whereas, like, when we did Volatile, we were in the studio for two months. So we were there, and the goal was when we were done, we would walk out and we would have this record ready to roll. Yeah, and, and then, so, I mean, you also have, like, a middleman there with right. the engineer and I, yeah. I think that's an element that 
I think we've got it figured out a little bit, but for the longest time, I was the one mostly going like we we need to have an engineer or so we like we got got to have like a referee in there. Yeah, to, like, somebody to make call the calls. Yeah, make this is a play and it's over and now we're on to the next. You know, we don't need an engineer to come in and co-write with this, which I I love that, but that's not necessarily what we need. We just need somebody there to call the plays and point us in the right direction and say that cut it well so whenever he passed away it was like you know that our, we had the come to jesus moment where we hadn't released anything since like 2016 and it was like you know where the pandemic was going on i was like okay it's been five years since we released anything outside of like a cover and we got blinding lights out and what really bums me out about boss the day that he the night that he died he called me earlier that night and our convert i was literally going to see him the next day and the next day we were going to sit down and try to like work on strangers and get a few of those songs that were basically done and start, start getting them done. He was like, yeah. dude, we, let's just get a move on. He was like, uh, he, and he apologized. He's like, I'm sorry, man. I've just been like, I, I just don't want to do things a bunch of different ways that you guys do necessarily, but that's not fair. Like I shouldn't do that and, and make us hold up, not releasing anything just cause it's not exactly how I want it. Like if you guys are happy to do things certain ways, like I'm not going to love that my name's attached to it. Cause it doesn't sound the way I would want it to go, but that doesn't mean it's not good and that it shouldn't go out. And we had had enough, you know, accolades and reviews under our belt. We had, you know, gotten back from Indonesia at that point. Like, there was enough saying that, look, people like this music. Like yeah. you, just because it's maybe not necessarily in your wheelhouse, exactly doesn't mean that it's not good by many more standards of uh, you know of metrics and so when he we we had already kind of had that talk like okay do before then we're like hey we haven't released anything do we want do are we just like not into the project because boss isn't into this song or that song that we're working on and it was like a no like we're always going to be doing music it's dumb of us not to keep yeah. doing it because we've already built like a brand around it and we do enjoy working with each other like it wasn't like we didn't enjoy writing together it was just like the outcomes necessarily weren't always what we wanted them to be either on his end or on ours. Yeah. And, and so then when he passed, I remember when we got together in the basement at Nate's and we were sitting around the pool table, just getting ready to go. We were get, we were meeting there to go to the funeral together. And when we went to the funeral, we were just like, before we went, we were just standing down there talking, like, does this feel like this is a stepping off point? Like, should we just, you know, give this kind of, you know, just kind of call this and then like move on. And I was like, well, we kind of already had this talk. And it wasn't even like we were really flirting with the idea of it. We were just like, look, like we've already had this talk. And the reality was we said we'd always be doing music no matter what, either way. And we like our dynamic. Let's see what our dynamic is going to look like now, because now we've lost this very like fundamental part of our group that does a lot of the engineering and arranging and programming and everything. And so, like, that was a, you know, that was a bummer. It was also, it's not that other people can't play what he was playing, but what he was playing was kind of part of our specific sound. Right. And other people can come in and play his parts, but I, without tearing Steve apart, because he's phenomenal and I've loved having him with us. But the first time we practiced with him for the show last year, it was it was pretty emotional, honestly, when we were in the garage and we start playing and you hear those parts coming at you for the first time live. And I 
didn't even really think about it. You just hear them and you turn around and boss isn't standing there. Right. And it's the same parts, but it, and like, again, no fault of Steve's. It's not the same. Well, yeah, like we're soft. We have like an emotional attachment and there's all this individual guitarist flair that is different about boss and Steve. That's the thing. It's just like the, the style of playing, I guess. I don't know. Like the, his finesse. Yeah. I don't know what it, was but it was just like a part of him yeah we're hearing and, it and it well, what was funny is we have so many different emotional cues and attachments to it right yeah and so whenever you hear it and it's somebody else playing it you're like yeah that's the part but like you know what you don't know how to quantify why it feels differently but it does yeah it was real trippy just turning around and being like oh shit <laughs> yeah damn and but it, i mean it was kind of cool at the same time right right that right he was there and i'm I love having Steve with us now. Yeah, he's great. We got to do an updated photo shoot. I haven't done one yet for us since we've got these film songs covered and filmed. Yeah. So I need to get uh, all that imagery updated. So I'm going to have to figure out. I talked to Tawny about uh, his fiance about how I want to do that. And and now it's just a matter of scheduling with everybody and like, okay, what's the hour I can get everybody together and we can all get down there and meet at this point, do this, and then you know back on our way. It'll only take like an hour. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, that come to Jesus moment around Nate's pool table, the day of Aaron's funeral was like, uh, let's go, then let's take a week to just kind of like process. Cause it had been a week since he had passed that we were going to the funeral. And then, you know, we, I think the first cover we did after that was, uh, positions yeah. that Ariana Grande cover. And it was like. I don't even care if it totally sucks. I was like, we just got to go through the motions of this to start seeing what our process is going to look like without this, you know, crucial element that we used to have being gone. And it worked. And then we're on to the next one. And we just kind of like kept the gears rolling. And we literally kept it going like that entire year. We released like more music that year than we had in the last like six combined. Yeah. Or five combined. And it was like, uh, it kind of felt like it, we had just gotten knocked off our horse, and if we don't get back on it as soon as possible, we may not get back on it. And not because we don't want to, but because we're not going to – too much time will have passed. Yeah. And so I'm glad that we did kind of like hustle and get together and work on that. And, and now, you know, obviously like moons later, there's been this huge debacle around the that whole scene of things with him passing and everything and – uh, it's, yeah, it's really, really frustrating, and I don't want to like air anything, but like it's it, that was a lot for me to process, and it got to a point where, you know, I was just, I actually was like talking to my therapist, I was talking to Jason about it, and he was like, you know, Johnny, I want you to know that what I'm really hearing you say is that you're hurting, and that what you're looking for is this piece of your friend that you no longer have around, and you're being told no and to be able to say, no, I want to fight for this piece of my friend to have in my life still to then, you know, realize it's going to end up causing some damage along the way is hurting you more than it's helping you. So he's like, at some point you need to decide whether or not you want to continue to pursue this and have this weight on you. Or if you want to maybe let it go and say, this isn't how I wanted it to turn out, but it is what it is, and I need to just kind of accept it and move on. Yeah. And so that's kind of the that's just where I kind of went with it, and it's been good because I've had a few moments where I was like, "No, I want to 
you know, nail this other dude's ass to the wall. <laughs> like I'm like, this dude is going to fucking pay. And, and so then eventually it was just like, you know what? Like I did what I wanted to do. I set what I set out to do. I stood my ground and he got called out. And if anybody wants to know the real story, I'm more than happy to do a fucking tell all speech episode <laughs> of this podcast. I'll do a behind the scenes. Yeah. I'm waiting for the day that it like, like it somehow that resurfaces and somebody wants to fucking have words with me about it. Cause I'm more than willing to sit down and hash out and explain the fucking nitty gritty of the details. Cause I remember leaving the night that I found out everything that happened after he'd passed away and driving home. And I like texted all of you. I was shaking. I was like, I need somebody to call me like right now. And everybody was at work or busy or doing this or that. And Jordan was the one who called me and I was hysterical. I was like driving down the highway just fucking balling, like I can't believe this fucking guy. Like, yeah, I don't this is insane to me. Like, where I was at because I talked to you like right after, and I don't remember where I was at, but I remember you were through the roof, and then I was just like, I don't think I was as mad as you were. I think I was just kind of like taken back a little bit. It's like, it's like I can't fucking believe that shit. Like right. that's how how do you do this like yeah. and i i don't want to get into that too much but i i don't think anybody is a bad person in any part of that situation except for one person and i think a lot of people look at us as being pieces of shit and people from RN kind of look at them and go like, what's the big fucking deal? Calm down. And it, it's a lot. And everybody lost somebody very special to them. And yeah. Well, I mean, look at, I mean, the day we went to his funeral, this is like peak COVID, not even like we've got yeah. vaccines out and people can start to relax a little bit of COVID. This is like early 2021. I don't, and we hadn't even hit COVID yet. Yeah, we had. COVID was out because oh, Boss wait, and I yeah, had talked about 21. it. It was 2021. Yeah. And he packed that fucking church. At church. Every seat in that fucking pew was packed. Like there were people standing in the back of the yeah. giant church just like there to pay their respects. And, you know, I I think my eulogy was like pretty on point. Like I, I love that kid to death. Like we frustrated each other. And that was the best part is people would be like, oh, yeah, well, he used to say all this shit about you guys, too. And we're like, oh, we know. We're not dumb. Yeah, he'd say it, he'd to, say our it to our face. And we'd say the same shit to him. Like, we, you, we, you don't have those kind of fights and not have it be blatantly known to everybody how much you actually love each other. Yeah. And so it's hard when people that didn't spend as much time with us and didn't, can, didn't know us as well, like as individuals – to only know him, maybe only hear or hit whatever he was bitching about or whatever. Yeah. And dude, I mean, I had my fair moments. I had shows that I showed up <laughs> or two where I hadn't warmed up or practiced at all recently. And I just like shit the bed live in like an acoustic setting. And, oh, you know, he, I get to live with that never, embarrassment. Yeah, is what he it never is. let you forget it. Yeah, for sure. And like he signed me up for singing lessons afterward. That wasn't the problem. The problem was we just didn't rehearse at all before we went and did this show. And that was because we couldn't coordinate our schedules to get it together yeah. in time. It was a short turnaround on turning around all of our songs into an acoustic set. And, uh, you know, like it, it just is what it is, is what it is. And 
it was what it was. And it, I like I felt bad because I know it was embarrassing for him. Certainly, it's fucking no more embarrassed is no less embarrassing for me. Certainly, I think he. I had to fucking write Brian Wapner an apology letter for being like, "Look, man, I really appreciate like what you do for the music scene in that area, and I am so sorry that I showed up and like I was just not prepared, and we weren't prepared, and uh, you know." I think he was. A little embarrassed, like most of the times that we played. Well, and, I mean, imagine, <laughs> I, I totally get it. Like, imagine being him. He's literally good at oh, everything. Exactly. Like, he picked up piano a few months before we went to the studio and then wrote, like, a the best piano ballad on our record. Well, it wasn't even two months. It was, like, three weeks. Like, I, I remember him sitting down and just messing with Volatile before it was Volatile. And the first time he played that through, I stopped and I went, what is that? I don't know. I was just making something up. And when we use that, we have to have that. And then he just kept playing with it. Three weeks later, he's like, oh, I decided I'd learn how to play piano before we went to the studio. Just, <laughs> just in case. Just yeah, in case. Yeah, just in case we want to do something, bud. And then we do. And then, uh, you know, I've been working on that music video for like three or four years. And when he passed away, it was like it suddenly I like I, I knew what I had to do with that music video. Like I knew what I needed to do to put that video out and what it needed to be. And it was so weird because he's not playing guitar in that video at all. He's yeah. playing piano, but he's wearing a nice tux that I rented for him. Yeah. And he's got, you have your hat on? He does. It's <laughs> the only part of me in that fucking video. <laughs> hey, you were there behind the scenes helping Alton set. Uh, yeah, man. And like, it was great because it was like, it showcased a side of him that maybe not a lot of people got to see. And that yeah. venue was so epic looking. Like there were a couple of bands that yeah, have shot music videos there, are, but I was uh, what band? Siler. I Siler, think I'm watching yeah. that one video and I'm like, I know this place. It yeah, looks so familiar. And then like one of the shots, I was like, holy shit! I was just there. Yeah, the uh, the one window that was in the front corner of the auditorium, like that brick and mortar had started to like fail and collapsed and caved in after we filmed the first set of performances and stuff and so when we went back to do all the other additional like pickup shots we had to like kind of shoot around a bunch yeah. of different things and uh and it, it let in all this natural colored light instead of that green tinted light that was coming through the green stained glass yeah and so it really shifted the way the room felt color temperature wise and i remember just being like damn this is gonna be a pain in the ass to work around and in hindsight, I know what I, I would have shot a lot of things a little bit differently, but, uh, you know, I'm still really proud of that music video. And I was sad that, you know, he never got to see it done, but yeah. it was nice that after he passed, that was kind of my grieving process. Like I was watching that video and like crying through it, you know, like cutting through each and individual scene and, and just like, uh, looking at the outtakes and stuff like that. And uh, him trying to give him give you his beanie, and he's like, just wear it, <laughs> and just all that shit. Like he was such a character. Like I, I get that there was a lot of like fighting and arguing and bickering between us. Remember the first tour we did together? Uh, we got into that fight coming out of Nyack, New York, because he was like yeah, upset you and about him. But he was upset about something. I don't remember what it was, but it was just one of those things where I was like, you know what? Like you need to understand that this is the way that this is going to get done. And you're not doing all this other like behind the scenes work that I'm doing to tee this shit up. So like you just need to go along for the ride on this shit because you have all this other control in all these other areas where I don't step on your toes or like yeah. give you shit about anything. And 
Yeah, it just got to a point where like I, I feel like we did better when we got away to the studio and recorded than we did when we were doing everything remotely because it was like we couldn't sign off on everything and there was no referee to kind of help us. Mm-hmm. And so then he passes. We had that come to Jesus moment. And then it's like, OK, all right. So now we got to figure refigure out ourselves. And that also became in, you know, what are we going to do about the originals we're going to write? And we had some demos yeah, that put was together. Kind of the other thing about that is we're basically refinding ourselves as relic hearts because i mean when we we went from the groundbreaking ceremony to relic hearts and we did we did those first two songs without boss yeah uh had that other guy with us jordan oh he didn't track not our jordan uh other jordan 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 from i forget his last name yeah me and peter still talk to him yeah um uh but he was up there with us and the next time we went back is when because i mean we came home and i think like literally right after we came home is when i i think me and dirk actually went and got boss and talked to him for a little bit and like the next day he talked to you and from that point on he was a part of the band that wasn't even Relic Hearts yet. And it was, but I don't think it was named yet. No, I didn't name it until after the tour. Or yeah, the- it would have been after we had started demoing and stuff. And so it would have been right after we were coming back from the uh, Sleeping with Sirens Feel This Tour in Europe. And we went. It would have been like the spring, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so he was in and we were writing other stuff because we went back in March and did uh, Wanderlust and On My Way. And basically we went from this pop punk band to rediscovering ourselves and basically reforming what we wanted. But we did that with him, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it started with like I knew we knew what we were. We wanted to go. And so, I mean, really, I mean, shout out to Matt Wentworth, because like that was a really hard period for me because we were just coming off of, you know, three years of warp tour and yeah. it was like this just isn't where we want to i want to be anymore this is not the music i want to be writing like i feels like our attitudes have shifted i would i would rather be writing a little bit more rock oriented yeah. and a little heavier and and matt was willing to you know in between tours have us have us come up and spend some time with him and and kind of help figure out what we wanted to do also and so, a phenomenal producer yeah man i mean they it's crazy to think like i was kind of telling this story yesterday like i remember you know, there were periods where, you know, our last night, like they wanted to, I don't know if they all wanted to, but Trevor was certainly like making, he was constantly cracking the joke. Like, I can't wait till we go home from this tour and break up and like <laughs> just saying shit because they were so jaded and it wasn't their fault. Like yeah. their label was fucking them. Their management couldn't figure out how to take care of them well. And, and, every, and it was hard because they were bad about the music industry was happening, <laughs> happening with their band. And so like, it, you know, seeing them turn it around with the Skyfall cover and then doing the summer of covers. Yeah. And, and kind of keeping that ball rolling, obviously now into 2023, like they're just absolutely killing it. Yep. And, you know, I, we don't talk as much as we used to, but like, I'm still proud of them. And I, I don't regret any of the time we spent together. Uh, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really so happy for that. I remember uh, I, it was a few years ago now, but when we you know, I remember you saying that they had had like their first as a band uh, had like their first million dollar year. And I was like, damn, like, that's fucking awesome. Like, that has to feel so good for them, like, basically (laughs) making a comeback. The ultimate comeback. Trevor's been posting uh, pictures and, like, updates of his house. This new house that he's building is coming along. 
it makes like the Wentworth Castle look small compared like so much. I, I, I have so many fond memories of them. And like those, I, I, I still consider them all to be like brothers. You know, like we spent a lot of time together and, you know, they saw dumb moments from me. I saw dumb moments from them. We, we just like, it's a really truly vulnerable sense of getting to know somebody uh, is like yeah. knowing each other in that capacity. It's like, I wasn't in their band, but it's like, I, I felt like I was a part of their community. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have nothing but respect and thanks for like all the help they gave us. Cause like when we were coming out of Warped Tour, it was like a reimagining of who we were going to be. And they helped us with uh, trust and with the one and the only. And then after that, Trevor did guest vocals on Wanderlust. And then, yeah. Uh, and I, I love his part. Like I, in my head, I knew how I had written it and I love the lyrics for it. And Trevor just killed it. I, I love that song actually. But like to have gone from, you know, where we were to then getting boss to join after we, you know, later that winter to then going and and starting to finish out the rest of those songs and starting to play out and whatnot. It was like, it was a big transition. And then to lose boss like unexpectedly to then have to turn around and do it again was really, it was not that it was difficult. It was that, I mean, I was, I don't know where I was in my grieving process really. Cause like the, I had finished a music video. So I was like, I'd done a lot of my heavy grieving and crying and stuff like then. And, and basically the week before and up to the funeral. And then I kind of was like, am I like numb? Cause I was like, I'm not crying anymore. And I'm like, I'm still sad. I literally had a moment yesterday, dude. Um, I was with, uh, Hannah's family. We were helping her sister move into this place and they were like, oh, we're going to go to Big Daddy's Grill and Chill. So we go to Big Daddy's. I never went there even when like boss worked there. And uh, as we're getting ready to leave, the music starts to come on because it's going from being a dinner restaurant in the day to the bar at evening. And the first song that comes on is Hey Jude by the Beatles. And I was like, you know, like he's, he's still, I feel like he speaks to me in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, and, me too. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things that like music is already pretty ethereal and to feel like you can still share a connection with somebody, even when he was gone, I felt, I always felt like that was still happening. And so when we had started to write new demos and stuff like that, it was like the first round of demos were, I, I was really happy with the first round of demos, but I'm glad that we kept pushing yeah. to get to where we were. And then when Nate got the Telecaster and wrote Spitfire, I was like, oh, hell yeah. And then we had a version of that slushed out and then I'm like, okay, but I want to kind of tweak this and really play with this. And New Kids really helped bring that song together in a totally different light because he forced us to think of it in a different way altogether. Yeah. And then taking that and then shifting it into, okay, well, now we've got new demos that have developed since then that are very aligned with that song, but still like very different than what we were writing before. And I have other songs I've got, like, you know, the verse, the chorus and bridges and stuff are all done to them and tracked. But I'm like... I don't think this stacks to Spitfire. And so like, I don't want to, I don't want to keep working on that. I'd like to keep working on songs that make me feel as good as Spitfire does. Spitfire, when we got the last mix of it and I was like, you know what? There's this thing that Kellen does and some Sleeping Wind Siren songs that I'm like, you know, I would really like to kind of have a, a scream going into that last outro riff. And here's how I think I could hear he would do it, that I would love to hear it. So I just did it to see how it turned out. And then hearing it in the mix, I was like, oh my God, yeah. that was such a good idea to add that in. And so like that song has come so far and now it's done. It's in the can. Great. Next, next are the next series of songs that we want to get done. And so now we're working on those 
And that's my goal for the summer is just to focus on getting, oh, uh, is to get the rest of those done. I have to put my phone on silent. My bad. Um, but, you know, I, I just kind of feel like music is such a weird and interesting journey to everybody. One of the things that really helped me uh, with coming to terms with how our band operated while we were with Boss is that we had gone so long between Volatile and releasing anything until we did the Blinding Lights cover that I remember being like, this feels like we're just doing it wrong or we're doing something wrong because we're not getting anything done and out. And then uh, James uh, Maynard came on to Joe Rogan's podcast right before, it was in the summer of what two, three years ago. And he was talking about how they were getting ready to release their music on Spotify yeah. finally. And he's like, it'll be out by the time this episode drops, it'll be out on Spotify. And so I, I then knew, and I remember specifically, we played the Trocadero show before they, they closed oh, the venue. Yeah. And we were trying to listen to Tool on the way down there. And the only way we could find anywhere to listen to it was on uh, YouTube. I remember that. And so we were like, damn, that's so stupid that they're not on Spotify. Like, why is that? And then Maynard was like, <laughs> Uh, yeah, our label just never really bothered to walk us through the process of like how we got to do that. And yeah. so we just didn't do it. So we finally did it. And he was like, you know, sorry, we're late to the game. Like we, that's just kind of who we are as a band. We're not a very conventional band. Like we go years between like, you know, albums and writing and how we want to do stuff. And like, we yeah. just don't do things very conventionally. And hearing him say that was so cathartic for me because it made me feel like, you know, for once I wasn't trying to uphold some ideal of how we needed to behave to be a functioning group. It, it like re-scripted my idea of what you have to do to be uh, productive as a band and what you'd have to do to consi be uh, considered like a, an active rostered band that's out and releasing uh, music. Yeah. I've been listening to a lot of podcast people lately. I finally got into that on YouTube and a lot of, a lot of things I hear with dudes in bands is kind of like the, the same thing. Like everybody kind of shares like the same, uh, uh, what would that be? Uh, like anxieties with yeah, stuff, yeah. but like, and I mean, it's all like a little bit different, but it's basically like the same things. Yeah, it may like, not all be rooted in like imposter syndrome, but there's still like some insecurities yeah, and some anxiety that surrounds the way you put your art out and how it's going to get perceived. And and I yeah, I was like seeing that that I look at that and I go, wow, like I'm not the only one that feels like that. Like and just like seeing that across like all those different platforms from different people, I go like, wow, like that's pretty. That makes me feel better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was just one of those things. Hey, Lewis, I just realized, can you hit the house lights? Oh. I usually don't have those on. My bad. I don't know. I'm just going to, people that are, are only listening to the podcast aren't going to give a shit, but that should shift away. Now I can take my sunglasses off. The sun went out. <laughs> hey, all the sun went away. The fake sun. Yeah, man, I... It, there's a lot to be learned from the other artists' experience, and that's kind of why, like, I wanted yeah. to start the podcast. The other, I, I know a reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast. I wanted to have you on to tell some of like your favorite stories from our band because there's nobody that tells a story about things that we have experienced and gone through as a band than you. And you have such, you have like literally the full pedigree of my experience doing it because you're the reason that, um, you know, I joined the groundbreaking ceremony. You were the reason that I even auditioned for Emberwell while I was... Did you even, Did you come down and sing? I think I did. Oh, you came to Jeb's house, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. And then, I, I mean, I've, I've told the story on Jordan's podcast, and I told it uh, yesterday <laughs> yes. I had to tell Sam. But, like, 
him not wanting me to join the band because he felt threatened was like so ridiculous to me because I was like, dude, I'm I'm learning. Like, I don't know anything. I just had charisma. And he was like that threatened him because it made him feel like, you know, he's going to be a good front man. And I want to be the front man. Yep. And, uh, you know, and then we kicked you out of well, there's no we to it. You were pissing everybody off with your negative attitude in the groundbreaking ceremony. And so Chaz and Dirk were like, I'm I'm done with dealing with his attitude. Like he's making us feel like shit every time we get together to practice because he's like not happy about this or that, but he's not changing anything about it. And you had some soul searching and life growing to do. And so did yeah. we. Those. And so we kicked you out and you fucking went and wrote a hate me song with Jordan. It and was real good. It was real good. It was called the worst. The worst, yeah. And uh, I actually I looked for that song for like probably two hours after I, not even after I watched the podcast. As soon as you guys started talking about that, I was like, oh yeah. And I started digging <laughs> through shit, and I have it on a hard drive, but I don't have the like plug for it, and it's like right. a special plug from twenty fucking years ago. Well, I all the same, somewhere. I'm glad that like we work with Jordan in like that professional capacity now. Like it was nice that we were able to bring him in to do like uh, a lot of our mixing and mastering. And the, we had a intervention yesterday with me that I need to start comping my own vocals and doing stuff because he was like, you know, you, you need to learn to love that process. And like, <laughs> no, bro, I'm time management guy. Like if I were just doing audio, yeah, I would have to take time to do it. But if I'm doing if I'm shooting the videos and editing the videos and setting up the backdrops and building the backdrops for them and doing the storyboarding and handling the socials and handling all of our online presence, like, no, I'm not going to be doing that also. Yeah. It's a time management thing. I don't want to spend six hours doing it. I know I could. I know maybe that's too long or whatever, but like I need to be able to be done with it when I'm done tracking it so I can be moving on to the next thing yeah. that I have to do. And that is the process that works for us. And I, it just is what it is. And I trust his ear with my voice. Like Jason and him both hear things in my voice and have pointed out things that I do that I didn't realize I do. And I don't know maybe necessarily who influenced them, but they're a part of how I sing and how I approach the things that I like to sing and, and how I lyric write or whatever. And, and so what I want to learn from them is more of the writing side of things. Like I, I've always been more curious about the songwriting side of things because you know, way back when in 2006, when we started, we tried to start a band. We couldn't get it off the ground because we had a demo. But I was like, I don't know how to write oh, yeah, to this. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know anything about writing. I just like singing in the car to all these bands that I like. And I didn't want to do a cover band, but I was like, I don't want to not know how to do a song and have a. I've just heard plenty of my friends' demos to be like, that's not what I want to be. Yeah. And so by having a bar already set in my brain, sure, it, maybe it stopped me from making music way sooner, but I think it only stopped me from making shittier music sooner. Uh, yeah, for sure. And so then we get out of, uh, you know, you're out of the band, and then uh, right before we have to go into the studio for 2012 to get our record done before we go out for Warp Tour that year, Chaz is like feeling kind of jaded because we weren't really given the whole tour to perform like we were told we were going to be. So he was like, I think I'm just going to kind of focus on, you know, my life and doing what I'm going to do. So he left the band and I was like, Hey, like Chaz left the band. Do you think maybe you'd want to come in and rejoin Nick? And you were, you were going through your breakup and you were living with a friend's house and we randomly yeah. met up at a Denny's again. Uh, and yeah, uh, you were home for Chris's funeral. funeral. Yep. And yep. we got together and we sat down and we talked and you were like, I mean, let me think about it. And then like you were uh, not even a couple of days later, you were like, all right, yeah, fuck it. Let, oh, I'm in. Let's do it. Well, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is why you're the story guy, dude. I misremember shit all the time. 
actually, I said no at first. And the reason that I said yes was all Jordan Kreps. Really? Because that's when I still worked at Phillips. Yeah. And he, what was he doing there? He had like a, I think he was like writing AIs or something like that. Uh, something along those lines. But he had his own little like cube that was down on the end of like a, a manager's row. So when I would walk into the factory, I would walk in and that manager row of cubes is like right there. You have to walk through them. So every day I would just go through and walk down to his cube and shoot shit with them and then go to work. And I came in and we were talking and he was like, so what are you doing with the band, man? Are you out of here? And I said like, <laughs> because we had Warped Tour was coming. Like we yeah. had, like that was a reality. I'd already ordered our and tent. I, we had things that we had to go and do and pick up. Like we I knew did. the first dates. It was like, this is our plan when we have to leave. Yeah. I, I think this was probably like two, three weeks after we had talked, maybe a month. And I had said like, no, like a kind of restarting life here and job's not bad. Everything's like, okay. I don't know if I want to have money for the that. first time in my yeah. life. And he, I don't remember like verbatim, but he kind of just like looked at me and he was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, what? And he was like, man, you like, you owe it to like everybody that has played music in this scene. And like, you get to go do warp tour. Like, even if you get to go do that and come home and the fucking band breaks up, like you got to go do that. And he was like, look at your life right now. You and your girlfriend just broke up. You work at a job that like pays the bills, but you're not fucking happy. Like, what are you doing here? Get the fuck out of here. And I was just kind of like, you know what? You're fucking right, dude. And <laughs> I was like, I'll, I'll be back. And literally walked out and walked down to my boss's cube and went, I'm going to be done in the middle of May. And he went, what? Uh, <laughs> I'm going on tour. And that was that. Yeah, you joined, you cashed out like your that was still like three, four months out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think he was just kind of like Chris passed in February. Okay. So I knew by end of March. So you yeah. basically knew like a month and a half in advance that you were going to be leaving. And they I think once we got <laughs> down to like uh, maybe two, three weeks before it was time for me to go. And I still was like, yeah, I'm fucking out. Everybody around there was just kind of like. I think there were a lot of people that were like, that's fucking awesome. But there were a lot of people that were like, this fucking idiot. Like, you are a moron. And yes, I am. But Nobody's ever going to understand what it means to kind of give up safety and security yeah. to chase something like this. It's not it's not easy for a lot of people to do it. And that's why a lot of people don't do it. Uh, yeah, that's I have said for a long time, like, uh, look at Zane. He graduated, went to college spent a whole lot of money on an education and I kind of went the other route that not a lot of people take and not to shit on either route, nothing wrong with either one, but down the road here, I got the kid who went and spent all this money on college and me, who just did the band thing and worked to support band thing. And 10, 15 years later, we both work at Jersey Mike's. Yeah. So, right. You know, it doesn't fucking matter. It's just. Yeah. Well, you think like <clears throat> there's so many different artists that have day jobs and that 
I think that gets like a negative stigma. It's like, if you're doing that, then you must not be successful at this, but that's yeah. not the metric for it. It, it. Like if you think success means you're only doing music and that's the only way you're doing it, that's you, you can't be in music for love of the money or you're going to have a very short career. Cause like, it's not, that's just not how it works. Like right. the money doesn't flow around. We like that. also, I think came up, I guess it was probably a lot specific to our scene too. And I, when I say scene, I think we, I think the easiest way to go there is just kind of like warp it into what I've called the warp tour scene, right? which is just all of it together. And for that particular scene specifically, we kind of came up at a time when it was pretty normal that bands were getting signed in their teens. And right. like early 20s. Trevor and, was signed at like 14, 13 or 14. Yeah. Like uh, I saw him for the first time at like 15. Yeah. And that that was normal. Uh, uh, Ken Vasoli in the starting line, they got signed when he was 15, 16, something like that. And since his fail, they were sending out a tutor for the drummer on the road so that he didn't have to go to high school shit like that so like we didn't that was all like in our grasp right. coming up that wasn't like oh yeah we're 20 years old we're never gonna fucking make it that was like the prime time for when we should have been making it you know yeah or at least in our minds so like when you're 26 27 and these bands that you've loved have been signed washed out done a 10-year tour reunion and washed out again before you've ever accomplished like the first metric the <laughs> base things that you've wanted to do as a band it can it can definitely fuck with you a little bit yeah so then we went and did the record with paul levitt in baltimore yeah and i was just talking about him like yesterday i think he That's just played funny. drums on somebody's record recently but then after we were down there he was doing some stuff with all time low again he was doing stuff with the dangerous summer like right after we left they were making like a comeback for their next album uh, at album, the time. That, oh, not that album. Not and, that album. But the last album they did was very good. And then uh, we have one song that is like we choose to be the single for the album. We put it at the front of the record, the EP. And we go and we film the music video with Don at Woodward, at Camp Woodward. Uh, here in Woodward, Pennsylvania. We had uh, Don Hampton got us in and got us uh access to the media warehouse room and we used that as like a performance yeah. studio space to to play just got to go mess around basically kid. with a bunch of well there were some like, there were bmxers and skateboarders all over the place and like it was a dream country. it was an thank awesome you. music video thank you don if, uh, that video is somewhere i'm sure online it's on YouTube. is it yeah i still I, watch it not all the time but i still pull it up and watch it randomly just because it it's fun. Like, it's just a fun music video. I still like that song a lot. It's a catchy little, catchy little ditty. I know that uh, Justin Brodsky just followed the uh, the podcast on YouTube the other day. I got the notification for that. His podcast? Yeah. He was, hi, Justin. Hi, Justin. He was playing uh, He's he was playing on Saturday Night Live for a little while. He was one of the session musicians on the backstage. Well, I think he said he was doing that, like, here and there when we talked to yeah. him. Yeah. And then, um, so then we finished that video and then it's being edited for the summer. In hindsight, if I knew how to edit back then, I would have edited it and had that video done before we went out in the summer. <laughs> yeah. It would have been a total game changer. We were home, I think, before. Yeah, we were home. It was, it was September when we finally ended yeah. up getting around dropping it. And so like when we came back, 
we drop it and it just didn't it did well actually it did a couple thousand views within the first week uh and for being an unsigned band like and not at where we were anywhere active on youtube at all at that we point. had a we we did like a month where we had a banner or something like that on AP Magazine. Yeah, Alternate like, Press put us up, and we were right next to Falling in Reverse because yeah. The Drug in Me Is You was out, or whatever that album was that the, came out, that first one. Yeah, picture that Jessa took at Woodward. Yeah, yeah, we, they let us use that. Midsummer, we came back, and we had an off day or two to kind of take a break and detox from the summer, shower, get clean a little bit, and just relax. Scott used it to roid rage out. Yeah, that's right. We, we shot that. I missed and, it. I was not there. Did but. he slap me? I think he, I think he shoved you. Yeah. I, I think I literally walked around the corner, like as this was ending. So I missed all of it. All that I know of this, it's like a, a urban legend for me and our band. <laughs> how many times? So we've been playing music together since 2008. That's how long we've actually, so 15 years this year in October. Yeah. So our first show was like that Halloween weekend of October. Do you, how many fights do you think you have witnessed within the band like that you had to interject and stop from happening even when i was at like peak crazy i used to like drink and get wild and like cause a scene and stuff with dirk because i used to have fun drinking with dirk and fucking around with him i don't think we ever really got into like physical confrontations almost ever no usually because i interject and then we were there there were some good ones what's the what's the most memorable one for you (laughs) I think I know which one it's going to be. You do. It's I there's been some good ones. I think there's only probably been two or three that if I wouldn't have stepped in, I think you two actually would have knocked the shit out of each other. But the the number one one was Las Vegas, for sure. That was number one? Yeah. That's a good one. What did you think the other one was? I thought it might be Vegas, but I, I also thought that Scott one was like, Scott was, that was, but about, I wasn't, I wasn't there for that. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. The Vegas one was in an elevator. We were in the Luxor we hotel. Were, was oh, that after the tour? The tour date was over. We were leaving the next morning. Yeah. Yeah. No, we were, it was like an off day. There might've been a day in between. I don't know, but Vegas was, date was over. Because we kids to, were passing out in the parking lot, dropping like flies because it was like 100 and something degrees. <laughs> and I, actually, the pavement was super hot. While we're on Vegas, it's a side story, because this is one of the things that people are like, what's like the craziest shit you've seen on tour? And this would be one of those moments as we're I think that was like the second or third day of Warp Tour. It was still very early. 2012? Yeah. And we, we didn't even have our tent yet because we- We hadn't picked it up yet. Cal- we picked it up in California. Next day. Yeah, next we picked day. it up in like San Francisco or something. So we were basically still trying to make it like- Sacramento. Spot to spot, like handing out CDs, making money for gas. Shout out to Easy Up Tents for hooking us up with the artist yeah, discount on that. That was awesome. Uh, so when we got to the hotel we were- in not staying at, but we were in uh, whatever guy we were with was with Ashley, Dean. 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 No, okay, all right. So it, it was she, he wasn't with Ashley. He was dating this girl that worked with Ashley at uh, the Hustler Club in St. Louis. And so then 
it was her birthday, I think. So she wanted to go to Vegas and and we knew we were going to be there then. Yeah. So she coordinated it. So she's like, hey, I'll go with my friend yeah. who's with this guy. He's got a penthouse suite on the top of the Rio in Vegas. And so we go up there and there's like a grand piano in the living room. It's yeah. got its own like infinity pool yeah. outlook jacuzzi Walked on like, out the deck. Walked onto the roof because it was top floor. And I mean, it was nighttime in the desert. So you can only see so far, but I mean, I'm talking like, you can see it all of Vegas. Like 200 fucking miles in any direction. It's right. like crazy. Well, then this guy wants to go down and play blackjack. And we go, okay. So we go down and I'm not really paying attention. Dirk is wasted just the whole time right beside him, trying to get him to give him like a $1,000 chip or just $100 the whole time. Well, and we realized we were, when we walked down and we followed him down to watch him play, we realized he wasn't playing at the normal tables. No, high rollers. He was at the high stakes tables. So yep. he was like, it's like minimum $10,000 bet. Per well, hand. I wasn't paying like that close attention. I just knew like clearly this guy has a lot of money. Right. And we knew that because we were in the, the penthouse yeah. suite. We were like, okay, he let us stay. There were like six bedrooms or five bedrooms yeah. in there and they let yeah. us stay there. It was The crazy. first night, I, this is how I know it was after the Warped Tour date in Vegas. It was because we had uh, production. Shout out to Kate Truscott and Lisa Brownlee and Damone and them, they gave us the keys to the room after production had already left for the day to get to yeah. the next venue. So we could use that room to shower and stay there if we needed to. We just showered there, I yeah. think. And then we had, then we met up with uh, Ashley like later. Yeah. And then, uh, so then we were staying at the Rio then for that next night, that which was the off night. And we were going to get up early the next morning and drive to the, wherever the next venue was. I'll have to look it up. It was Orange County. I drove us in. You were all passed out. Yeah. Well, we were up all night and we were drinking and getting drunk and stuff. And so, yeah, so we go to, we, okay, so we go, we're at the high stakes table. We're watching Dean play. Uh, so he, he loses all of it. And that's where I was just like, God damn. Like we're trying to make it like spot to spot for gas and like enough to get McDonald's in us. And how much did you think he was betting per hand at, go, first, at first? I go, this guy just lost $50,000, like heartbroken. And you looked over at me and went, $50,000? <laughs> I don't think so, brother. Look at those chips again. And I went, oh my God. And like, I remember the feeling, like my <laughs> heart just like a million pieces on the floor. And I went, that guy just lost a half a million dollars. This guy just fucked off a half a million dollars. And as I'm figuring this out, he's back in like 35 grand. And then tells Dirk, yeah, if I if I win, I'll give you guys a thousand dollar chip. So then Dirk is just drunk Dirk, like, oh yeah, go on, Dean. Oh, Dean's my best friend, man. And he lost all of that. And then gets up, goes, yeah, I'll see you guys tomorrow night. Like he just lost a hundred bucks. Maybe. And, <laughs> yeah. and like walked away like it was fucking nothing. Like I just watched you lose $534,000 and you don't give a fuck. It, that's crazy to me. That's that's still talking about it is fucking insane to me. And then the next night we are. Okay, so. So then immediately following <laughs> that, we go to leave. You two are fucking hammered. And I have no idea what you were even fighting about but you're just back and forth and it's kind of just going more and more and we all step into this elevator <laughs> and i don't know who did what first but a constant argument when they argue about anything is who's the bigger man you don't want to fucking get into it with me and knock your ass back into sunday and yeah i'd like to see you try fucking pussy 
all the time. Well, one of you kind of like did this to the other one and then the other one fucking did it back and then the other one into the wall. And that's when I I saw both of you like chest pops out, shoulders go broad and like the eyes and walked in and I went, nope. And arms went through me. And that's when I don't I don't remember what the fuck I started saying, but I just started screaming like in this elevator. It's <laughs> just the three and of us. By the time Scott was in there and Scott was there, too. OK, that, that might have been it. Yeah, I think it was just four of us then. And by the time or uh, what was his name? He was with us. Uh, uh, guitar. Mike. Mike. Mike Baker. Mike Baker. He was with us. That was probably real eye opening for him. By the time that fucking door opened, though. Nobody's saying shit. And I was like, out in the fucking van. Let's go. And got in <laughs> Sun's van. coming up in Vegas. We've been yep. up all it's night. Like five in the morning. And everybody in the back, I was in the front by myself. When I get back there, shut the fuck up, pass out. I don't give a shit. Because I was, I think I had had a drink or two. But I was the only one sober because I was driving into California. And that I think 10 minutes, everybody's fucking out. And I peacefully drove into Orange County, California for the first time by myself. You remember the night that we decided to get uh, Davey Hoog to come with us from Freshman 15? <laughs> yeah, he just called and quit his job. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go on tour. Uh, fuck off. Bye. And that dude was wild. Yeah, he was a good time. What was the name of the bar that we went to that night that he took us to? He's like, you guys got to go to this place. Uh, Redneck Heaven. <laughs> we met a guy named Rooster. What? Yeah, this is his name. His name is Rooster and his bud. I don't remember this. They were the guys that got us to do the shot with the fish in it. Oh, the minnow. It was a tequila or something. I don't know what the fuck it was out of fish in it. Yeah. It didn't matter. Yeah. We did I, didn't, I didn't want to do that. I felt so fucking terrible for that fish to this They dropped day. it in. It just like rise a few times and then it's dead. Yeah. Like it's just inhaled alcohol I and felt, died. Felt terrible for that fish. I was like, why is this a shot that you do here? Like, I don't even remember the name of that shot. We're going to have to look all this up whenever no, we're done. No, because they were giving a shit. And we kept telling them like, no, dude, we're not going to do that. Like, I specifically kept saying like, I don't, I'm not, doesn't even have anything to do with the fact that I don't want to put a fucking fish in my mouth and swallow it. I don't want to do that to a fish. And they just kept on fucking going. And apparently we had had enough to drink that we were like, fuck it. We finally caved. And Scott was the only one that didn't do it. And to this day, I'll still get some fucking shit for it. Not but he did do, uh, they did the belt thing. Did I do the belt thing? I don't think, I think, I think I did, but I think I told her yeah. not to hit me yes. hard. They were like, they made you sign a waiver. <laughs> and these girls, like you do the shot and you have to like bend over this rail and give them your belt. So they line you up at the end of the night. They don't tell you what it is. They just say you have to sign a waiver and you're like, all right. So they wait until you're good and fucking wasted. And at the end of the night, take you out to that front of the restaurant and they have a line of chairs there and you don't sit on sit on them they're backwards and you lean over them okay all right. and then they go down the line and they give you like whap 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 and then on to the next one i was the last one on the line and i had a lot to drink i was very single and all of these hot girls all around smacking these <laughs> they get down to me and i turn around and i remember <laughs> looking at this girl and going I want you to give me everything you fucking got. Like Jose Canseco, that shit girl. And she Didn't went. You have a studded belt. Uh, I don't fucking know. I, I know she went, are you sure? And I went, yep, give it to me. 
That girl fucking backed up and took like three steps in. She hit me with everything she had. I have a picture somewhere where I like pulled the back of my shorts down. It looks like I have like a third degree burn next to my white skin. It was <laughs> fucking insane. That girl had to have like trained for that shit. Like, yeah, she, she loved it. She thought it was hilarious. Jose can Seiko that shit. That's what yeah. I remember you saying to her. And then, uh, yeah. So then we I think at that point we had had so much fun. And Davey didn't really have anything else going on other than like working his job his over job the summer. At Starbucks. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, yeah, fuck this. I'm going to go with you guys. I was like, you don't have to, but if you want to, it'd be great <laughs> to have an extra set of hands for merch. Like he's the kind of guy, he was the dude at Warp Tour that was behind the merch tent with a megaphone and a pair yeah. of shorts with no shirt, hollering at people yep. to get him to come over and talk. And he was really good at doing it. And uh, so yeah, so he quit his job and then he joined us and just, he was with us for the rest of that summer. Mm-hmm. We dropped him off on the way home. Yeah. And then uh, there was something else. Somebody else got into a fight that I thought you might talk about. It was, it was that night. It was right after the belt thing. Scott and Dirk got into it. <laughs> and Dirk and I never fight. Like, it, we have always had such a great relationship. So the fact that he and I almost got into it in Vegas, I don't know what it was. We just were just drunk. We were both super, super drunk and then talking shit. And we finally let it Ashley. build. That's, that's what it was about. It was about Ashley. Because he didn't want me with her. Some, and I was still something like lines. that. I don't know. He was yeah. just talking. And I was like trying to be like, look, like yeah, just because you don't agree with it doesn't mean you got to be like that yeah, or whatever. But that, that's pretty par on par. Yeah. So then what happened the next night with Scott? Who He picked up with Dirk. <laughs> so Scott and Dirk that night. This is definitely like this is probably outside of boss and Scott because <laughs> they actually fought like <laughs> before I could get to them. But <laughs> this one. <laughs> This one, if I wouldn't have been there, Scott would have died. He, Dirk would have killed him. They, I don't know what they were even fighting about, but they, like you two, like going back and forth, and Scott will always back down, never gets like manly, but he had been drinking, so who knows what was flowing through him. And he got to a point where Dirk said something to him, and Dirk would just fuck with him because he knew he could. And Scott like had enough or something, and you like, guys fucking bullied him. Gave yeah, he was like, he replaced me in the band. I have a right to <laughs> to bully him, I'm a little brother. Uh, he like manned up and gave Dirk a little shove or something like that, and Dirk like shoved him back. And Scott apparently was at his point and fucking like shoved him, and you you could literally like see it. It was. A really good point of for me was uh, looking at them and you could see like it was like two seconds of Dirk's face being so surprised. Like he couldn't fucking believe that Scott. Oh, no, I know what he literally reached over and bitch slapped him across the face. That's what he did. (laughs) Like out of nowhere, Scott just fucking slapped him across the face. And you could see like Dirk's eyes like just go this big. And like the surprise, like he couldn't fucking believe that he just did that. And in two seconds, that turned into, I'm going to fucking kill you. And Scott, same thing, slaps him, makes contact. And you can see in his face, he just went like it was the manliest thing he ever did. He just went, I can't believe I just fucking did that. He like had the pride in his eyes. Yeah, <laughs> immediately realized what he just did and went, I can't believe I just fucking did that. And he could he could see like Dirk literally like boom and when it stepped in and I like I saw it coming and jumped in and went 
get the fuck outside now, we gotta go. And they're screaming at each other. Waitress who just beat the shit out of my ass is going, you gotta get them the fuck out of here right now. Wait, that was the same night as in Redneck Heaven? Yeah, it was before, that's why we left. You know, you feed a bunch of dudes alcohol and then you get them in a lot of pain from a belt welt across the ass. It, that you're setting, you're teeing yourself up for a recipe for disaster yeah. there. Yeah. So that was that one, but I got them out and there was no contact there. I think I like drugged fucking Scott out. That's so funny. Yeah. That would probably, that probably would have been the one that I would have gone with. Cause that was the one where like, it looked like two people were going to murder each other. Uh, yeah, I was, think Dirk and I, we literally apologized to each other in the parking lot before we got in the van. I, he was just like, you know, I just love you, man. Like, I, I don't, I just don't. You know, like the way she talks to you and treats yeah. you. Generally, like, oh, I don't have to worry about you two if I get into the middle of it. I know, like, you don't really want to kill each other. Everybody wants to fucking hit Scott. He's and just got I a hittable face. I, yeah. I, I don't even want to hit him, but, like, just looking in his face, I'm like. Yeah, I'm not saying I, like, want to hit him, but, like, I don't know what the fuck you do, Scott. But you piss some people off. Actually, I do know what you do, you little shithead. He doesn't shut up. You don't shut up. We got we to gotta have him on podcast yeah i'd love to have him when he's funny uh and I then love, i do love him though I and then his Scott. fight with boss i don't remember what that was about but that was when we all lived together yeah i there were like two but i i missed like no the first one was when we snowballed him snowballed uh boss oh that and he that video is on our whole fucking house <laughs> apart he broke the door and scott just happened to be in the middle and he like called off and fucking punched them and i had a guitar on that was plugged into an amp and like, i went to go after boss and like went like this to go after him for hitting scott and like went like this and the guitar pulled me back because i'm still strapped into this thing by the time i got it off to go after him he was out the back door and everything was destroyed in a matter of seconds that was that one. But the other one was where he like he actually was like on fucking top of him, like beating the shit out of him. By the time I I came down the stairs and all I see is boss on top of the couch on Scott, just fucking beating him and went over and pulled him off of him. And Scott's standing there, his hairs everywhere. <laughs> Get the fuck out of our house, boss. Get the fuck out. And just <laughs> losing his shit. But I have no idea what that was even over. All I know is he kept saying something to him. Yeah, he was like, and boss was like, you know what? Stop. Yeah. He was like, boss, was like, you know what? If you, don't, if you don't shut your mouth, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to fucking hit you. Yeah. And he's like, oh yeah, you're going to fucking hit me, boss. You're going <laughs> to fucking hit me, boss. And then he did. He did. Uh, yeah. Like <laughs> I remember when Scott got in, he was like, you just hit me. <laughs> and then Scott kind of like stood up for himself a little bit. And then when you came down, it was when they were on the couch. That was hilarious. Boss was asleep for the snowball thing. He was he got drunk early and passed out. And uh, it snowed. I went out. I grabbed the big snowball. <laughs> and I just railed right in the belly for him. And he woke up like, what the fuck? And I ran outside immediately as soon as he got I mean, up. So he we, looked like we he knew was, there was going to be some carnage. We didn't know the degree to which we were about to witness a fire start. We actually when was this uh, last year sometime? Uh, right before October, I think. Yeah, it was like right before we found out about my dad. Uh, she was in state college for something for work, and she had like got up and went for a walk. Who was? Aaron. Okay. So she walked by the old apartment 
and like took a picture of it and sent it to me. And she was like, look what I just walked by. And I was out front. So I like zoomed in on the pictures. That frame from the front door is still fucked. They never fucking fixed it. It's still completely busted apart from boss tearing through that motherfucker. Yeah, he went on a rampage for sure. Yep. So I can only imagine what the inside of it looks like. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, so that was pretty wild. We had some pretty good stories. Are there any other good stories that stand out from like different times of being out on the road? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's fucking tons. But I mean, those were. I think those three were. uh, The big like Warp Tour timeline ones. What happened that summer on Warp that you were like really kind of like tickled your fancy and made you happy? Like for me, that was the summer I got to sing for Lost Prophets because Ian didn't show yeah. up that day and I got to sing their set. Did you see me play that set? I don't even know if everybody even knew that no, I was doing that. Nobody did because we that was like the third to last day for us, something like that. And so it was like end of the tour. Towards the end. Of, we were in everybody, Florida. It still goes north and then it started to go yeah. west. We left after, I think, like Minneapolis. I yeah. think it was like the last date that we did. Everybody was tired, like not just us like the whole tour like had reached that point where everybody's so happy to be there but you're kind of just like we're done yeah (laughs) and then after minneapolis the tour went to like it did two dates it was like oregon and seattle and for every band that's in california that's not a big deal because you just go back there and when you're done you you know drive back down south if you've got a bandwagon or a driver or whatever he drives it from there back to indianapolis that's where most of the bandwagons come out of and then uh, then you'd fly them home to wherever they were going yeah. home. So there was like this expenditure you were going to get. And for us, we were like, I was like, I don't want to do another merch reorder because we're just going to end up sitting on a lot of this merch. And then we drive to the other side of the country to turn around and drive all the way back. Everything back. we were going to make and merge from our projected yeah. sales from last year and, and that year where we were going to make enough to basically spend the money and gas to get there back to where we were and then be out money from there to there. And so I remember we let a bunch of the bands that we had homied up with on the tour know we were going to leave early. Taking Back Sunday was one of them. They gave yeah. us a, like five. They gave us like five hundred dollars cash and like they gave uh, us two hundred bones in an envelope. Two hundred and Eddie actually it was it was signed by it from Taking Back Sunday, but Eddie wrote it and had everybody I think like sign it. I have it in my room. I no, you don't. At, yeah, I do. No, you don't. How the how the fuck. Did you take that? I did. You fucking took that, When didn't I went you? down to the Blink-182 show. You motherfucker. It makes a good podcast set piece. It's a good piece to have on the set. I thought you would bring some trinkets and shit to, like, sit around. Well, I didn't need to. And you've got all the other memorabilia. You've got the newfound right, already signed drum right. skins and, you, like... All right, you can have it for a little bit. Yeah, it's a loan system. It's never... <laughs> nobody owns it. You don't own it, Nick. We but, just... We share it. There are two people in this band that I trust the relics with. You and me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably that's probably good. That's probably fair. Uh yeah. I mean, that was such a wild, wild tour. I remember there was the day in Cincinnati where I was gonna get to sing with them, but then Shelly came up and was like, Hey, I need you guys to make something 50 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for all the truck and bus drivers or something like that was like a last second addition to like what they wanted us to do and so i was like i'm gonna 
I had to do that. So I've literally made sandwiches instead of singing with Taking Back Sunday, which would have been arguably better than my experience of having to sing for Lost Profits, even though the rest of the guys in that band were really, really cool. And uh, like Ian, their singer, he seemed like a fucking dick the first day. He joined, they joined on the Darien Lake date yeah. of Warp Tour. And I remember being like, yo, wait, what? Well, I was like, what is Lost Profits doing here? And they're like, oh yeah, they're, they're on the rest of the tour, but they didn't join until like two weeks in or three weeks in or something. And I mean, uh, their drummer, Luke, was awesome. And uh, Drew, their bass player, was the one who gave him gave Ian a black eye whenever he came back to that date of Warped Tour at Vinoy Park in St. Petersburg that year. He showed up, and like by the time I had seen him, he already had a black eye from getting laid out by Drew. Yep. And the whole band was really nice. Like they were all like, dude, thank you so much for covering. Like, that's awesome. Like, I'm surprised you knew all the songs. Like, that's great. I didn't know some of their newer ones. So I let Jamie, their keyboardist and other singer, uh, do those. And I just would pop behind, back behind Luke and just be on cloud nine. Yeah, I was sitting in the ocean. That was St. Petersburg. Yeah. Yeah, that was not like my, that was probably my second favorite location from that tour. And it was just the end and the place where the tour was was kind of on this like embankment that out around the end of it like wrapped around the ocean onto the beach yeah and so me and scott went down just like we set the tent up somebody was there but we were just like fuck it we're we're out we're gonna go be on the beach right and i like sat in the ocean and then when we got out i remember picking up my phone and being like johnny is singing for lost profits and scummy wait what what's going on but we, it was i don't know hour or two after already i remember uh austin carlisle was on the tour that summer he came up to me and was like yo man like i saw your set with lot with lost profits he's like that's awesome yeah. i was like holy shit austin carlisle <laughs> knows who i am uh yeah that was such a wild wild tour i, yeah. I wish that like there was a way to kind of I, I i am glad to kind of see that it's over for now, I know Franz bought the rights to it. Yeah, so I think that. I think there's like a clause of like five years after the end of it, he has to wait until he can do another one. And I don't know if he'll bring on all the same like infrastructure, like Forfini and the staff to run it, like Lisa Brownlee and Kate Truscott and all them. But shout out to them and Damone for like always taking care of us. I remember like <laughs> Lisa likes vodka. So I remember when we went to the Orlando Data Warp Tour that year, I remember stepping out of two things. I remember stepping out of the van and getting bit by ant fire ants fucking right away because of where we were parked. And then I remember uh, going to the liquor store at some point that day to get her a bottle of vodka to be like, hey, like, thanks yeah. for taking care of us i really appreciate you like i shit. bought a handle of sailor jerry's that night yes you did remember and people were jumping off of the pier into the water where the alligators were i do davy did it davy did it i did it you so did it too fucking wasted wow that is to that's this the day, dumbest thing you have ever done the drunkest that i have ever been like ter i made an Dude. ass out of myself to sierra lyman just made an absolute fucking moron out of myself and thankfully ran into her the next day when I had what the did worst you do? hang. I have no fucking clue that somebody oh. else can tell you. Scott maybe was there. I don't I don't remember who was there, but something I think one of the things that I asked her was if she because she knew or was friends with uh, uh, Jacob Knoll, the Brad Knoll's son. They, like, oh yeah they, like went to school together and they were friends or she knew him and i thought that that was just like the coolest fucking thing ever and uh the one thing i said to her was like 
Yeah, when you go to school, uh, do people like treat you differently because you're like Kevin Lyman's fucking daughter? And she, no. And she entertained it phenomenally, apparently. <laughs> She's a class I saw her the next day and I was like, Sierra, I am so sorry. And she just laughed at me. She's just like, I, it is absolutely fine. It was so funny. Like she thoroughly enjoyed my dumbassness. So she, uh, it's been funny to watch her grow. Cause that was the last summer she did on the tour before she started college. Yeah. And so like, we, I, I, we've kept in touch over the years. Like I, I've like kind of gotten to see her go through her undergrad and college years. And now like she's out in the real world. There's like a part of me that hopes that she will kind of pick up the reins in some way. And not that I would want that. She may not want that for herself. So I wouldn't ask her to, I wouldn't ask that she do that just for, you know, my uh, sake yeah, of like I think seeing that, that pedigree stay involved. One of the but, things that I remember us talking about with her was because uh, I think that was kind of like a thing was people were asking her like, you know, are you going to take over for your dad? And she, I remember saying like, maybe like, it's not that she, didn't have an interest in it. There were just like she just things to, that she wanted to do. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, that's pretty cool. Like, yeah. Good for good on her for being that yeah. age and having that on her show. Your dad started Warp Tour yeah. and you could potentially take over the reins of it if you wanted to. And she's like, I want to go see the yeah, world a little bit and like, do some soul searching and see what I want to do before I try to, yeah. before I decide to do something like yeah. that. And I, I respected that a lot. Do you remember when we were at the Broncos stadium in Denver and you were talking to, was you talking to Kevin or Sully about Sublime? Kevin. Oh, yeah. yeah, you did. You did. That was the first time you like you met yeah. and talked to Kevin. That's right. Yeah, that's the only time I talked. Well, now I talked to him a few times. Uh, yeah, talked to Kevin because that's I, Brad Noah is still one of like my musical heroes. But at that time, I was like kind of rediscovering Sublime and kind of really like finding out how much he like meant to me. Right. And so when I. Is he one of your musical influences, would you say? Brad? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, I mean, him. He was one of my brothers, too. I mean, like, I remember Brandon, my older brother, whenever he would come home from uh, California in the summers, he, his mom moved out there. So he moved out there with uh, Ariel. And I think Candy moved out for a brief period until she graduated. I uh, didn't his band play uh, at the Palace, like where they would play all the time? Uh, the Phoenix Theater. In Petaluma, okay, yeah. yeah. In Petaluma, California, yeah. He, uh, they, I mean, Sublime was gone at that point, but I remember my brother used to come back and it was like all the records I got to listen to because he came back and shared them with me. Like Green Day's Dookie had come out and I remember him playing that for me in the basement of my parents' place yeah. in Pleasant Gap. And then uh, Sublime, he was big into Sublime and then his band, Go Time, was opening for the Long Beach Dub All-Stars. yeah. And that was uh, like their Sublime's project after yeah. Brad had passed away. And uh, I remember him saying that like uh, the guy that did the Sublime tattoo on that's on Brad's back yeah. was like, yeah, if your band ever makes it to the level that we did, come to me and I'll do your band across your back like I did for Brad. And my brother was like, oh, I need to have that happen. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, he never got to get his band off the ground. But, you know, seeing my brother was making music and I was able to listen to it. For the first time, I was like, it had never dawned on me that I could do music, too, if I wanted yeah. to. And I already like singing. Like, I was already driving and like ripping around in my car and singing to The Used and Taking Back Sunday and like Sum 41 and all these bands. And then, like you know, you flash forward literally 10 years and now I'm like out on tour with <laughs> Sum 41, Taking Back Sunday, uh, 
Uh, that was the used. I remember sitting tour for me and like newfound glory. They, that was, yeah, they were day, so like, good to us. Yeah. To Cyrus Baluki would give us all of his, like they, uh, their drum tech would take their, his drum skins off every like two shows. Yeah. And instead of throwing them out, Cyrus was like giving them to Dirk. And so Dirk could re, uh, uh re skin we and set Pomona. Yeah. Pomona was like the second day, I think in California, uh, Jenny, their tour manager, came up to Jenny me Douglas. Like, before before we even really like knew who she was, and just she was like, "You're the catering band, right?" Yeah, and handed me a bag, and it. I was like, "Okay," and had all these drum heads in it, and one of them she just like had them sign it for us. So I still have, unless you fucking <laughs> swipe that too. No, I didn't. I didn't. How did you notice that one was missing on the wall? Yeah. It's a big you know, a big, uh, Tom skin. So yeah. like, so I like, just randomly had them sign that for us and had sticks in it and, uh, gave us like a, a little like repair thing for our easy up. Uh, and I mean, that was literally just like randomly, here you go. Cause you're the catering band. And I was like, Oh, that was so nice. Like, thank you. Like they were just the nicest guys. Yeah, they were really good. We we lucked out, man. It was cool because like we were meeting a lot of they were our peers in that scenario, but these are artists that we grew up listening to. I, yeah, that was when before we left for Warp Tour, I had oh remember just what do you remember after we wrapped the music video shoot? We went to Don's that the day before we were leaving. Yeah. And we were having like the music video rap shoot and uh, he made edibles. And so we like, <laughs> yeah. but he was like, I don't know how strong they are or whatever. And so like, I remember like taking one and being like, waiting half an hour and being like, I, mm, I don't really feel I anything. So, the pan. Yeah. And I had like two or three or four. Because I didn't know. I, I waited like an hour and was like, the fuck? This isn't working. Well, so we were also drinking. So, so like we weren't not the rest like, of them. Yeah. Well, and then so then I remember the drive out to Warp Tour from there was the first date was in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So it's three days. Yeah. Three days of driving. And I'm one thousand percent sure that we were still high when we showed up. Like I feel I, like I, was, I, was, I still felt like I came in my that feet up on the dashboard in that passenger seat. And I did this for three days. And it was <laughs> like I was just stoned out of my gourd for the entire three days out there. And it was phenomenal. It was a spiritual journey. It was great. Uh, yeah, that tour was so great, man. I feel bad because like, uh, it's hard to not bring it up and reference it all the time. And I'm sure it gets annoying, but like, I remember like yeah. so many things you just don't understand. Like it's, it's, it's punk rock summer camp and kids that had a good summer camp experience when they were in like middle school or high school or whatever. It's one of those things where you have these transformative experiences with your, you know, your camp counselor and your, the group of people you're with and you have no connection to everything. Well, you might as well be in the same situation for punk rock summer camp because yeah. you have almost no cell service. Cause as soon as like 7,000 people or 10,000 people are like in a venue area, sucking up cell phone data, there's no service. You can't yeah. send texts or anything and get anything to go through. So it was like super difficult to get a hold of each other. And we didn't have radios like production did. So there was like no yeah. way to get a hold of each other except for to like check it, check where the van was, check where the merch tent was, check the stage. Like these are the three places yep. you can maybe find somebody you're looking for. But we were like nomads, dude. We're just running everywhere and going and seeing like, you know, we're, we're, we're watching artists that we like and we're, uh, you know, I remember watching the use for the first time uh, backstage in New Mexico and 
just being like blown away at how like energetic they were live still like at this point probably 15 years into their career yeah. like performing and just being like this is insane these guys are so good live and uh it was just hard right because like i'm like watching all these people i grew up with and they're out there and like you could just see them later every time i die is doing the barbecue yeah they've got their own little there. drink tent and they're like they set up and they're like that's the that's the tent you go to if you want to have a really stiff drink and then like, and then they would back in their trailer or whatever, their bus and then unload all their weight equipment. And yeah. cause they were ripped. Those dudes are so yeah. stacked. Their one guitar player looks like a professional bodybuilder. I don't know if he still does, but he looked like a pro bodybuilder for sure. I, I don't remember where we were. Where was it? Kansas. Kansas City, I think. In that wooded area? It was like a smaller venue. It was. So here's the thing. Like a lot of people don't realize like Kevin wasn't really making money hand over fist on Warp Tour. Like yeah. it relied heavily on the nonprofit support because you've got to pay out, you know, by August when the tour is wrapping up, he's booking the headliners for the upcoming year. Yeah. And so he's filling out the rest of the stages clean up until like November, maybe December, a few stragglers or whatever. And, uh, and so I remember – uh, at the Gorge Amphitheater date, asking him questions about like, you know, like, do you make like a shit ton of money off of like the merch and all that stuff? He's like, we have to sell merch just to get closer towards break even because yeah. when Live Nation started buying up all these amphitheaters all over the country to kind of like, it, first off, these venues needed Live Nation support to get them up to a certain level of being able to go and enjoy a show in the first place, yeah. especially with the amphitheater setup. That doesn't pertain to warp tour as much whenever all the stages have their own yeah, PAs and stuff already yeah. in there. Their own, you know, every every stage has its own sound booth. They have certain trucks are meant to like block sound and stuff like that so that there's not a lot of bleed, even though it's like impossible. And and so like between paying the bands, renting out the venue space, and doing all the other stuff he has to do to like run stuff, it's uh, it was such an expensive operation. He wasn't like really profiting that much because he's got to pay his staff for Finney. He's got to pay them. Yeah, I think the they were doing country throwdown and probably uh, don't think just. I mean, Warp Tour. Just you say Warp Tour, it's massive. When you start to pinpoint where everything's going and coming from and how it's getting put together, I mean, Warp Roadies. They did the show for two years, and yeah. that I don't even think like. You got a pretty good look at it. But this is not the full even, story. Yeah. Like, it's just a, even, just a production standpoint you story. You get a glimpse of it. Like the shit that they made happen every day is unbelievable. You've got I mean, a caravan of 80 plus bands traveling all across the country. The routing is set like the year before basically to figure out what the routing is going to mm -hmm. be for the tour. And you have to do it in a smart way because these bands also have to pay their buses and their drivers. Yeah. And like, so like that's a lot of fuel. It's like $700 a day average to it's, like rent a bus. 700 plus bucks every time you fill the tank. So like your guarantee has to be whatever supports that yeah. daily to be able to cover your expenses for just your travel. And then they've got their merch. And then when you go to Warp Tour, like we took uh, Taking Back Sunday or uh, the the color Fred, I think, or what the terrible things they were called that year. We took like Taking Back Sunday's extra merch and and a couple other bands extra merch and packed it into our tent so they didn't have to broker it going into Canada. Yeah. And we just didn't do the Canada dates because it was like then we'd have to broker our merch. And then which was kind of in hindsight, I wish we had done just because we would have had the ability to tap into a Canadian market a little bit more. Yeah. But then there was that death and we also in Canada. we didn't have they had 
done uh, the passport thing. So you had to have your passport. We couldn't just have our, I think used to just be your birth certificate or. Yeah. Did you have to have anything? Yeah. You had know. to have your, you had to have an ID and I think you had to have like your birth certificate yeah, or like. But they had or made or so. passports. So. Yeah. And they, we didn't have them in yeah, time. We you didn't. were the only one at the time that. Yeah, I, I still had mine was active from whenever I was living in Japan. So I like I, I still had that to kind of lean on for another five years or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, that that tour was really transformative. And I feel bad to all my friends that are like local because I'm like, I bring it up in like in certain occasions where like it, this story reminds me of this thing. That's I do, too. And but I mean, it's kind of like that the 10 years later, it's like. I, I don't want it to seem like I'm hanging on to the glory yeah. days, but it's like it, those were really amazing times for us. Like we right. we traveled all over. We sold tens of thousands of CDs as an independent artist. We were self-produced, DIY, unsigned, making all of our money. We climbed into Warped in 2012. We were like $25,000 down between getting Marley, the van, yeah. and between our merch order through Equal Visions Records promo and – I think like we had had our merch debt paid off within like three days and then we had paid off the van and all of our maintenance and stuff throughout the rest of the tour. And then we yep. came back and everybody got like a little kickback of whatever was left over, but it wasn't much. And you had no. actually had to put, you. Uh, I, yeah, I dropped, I like cashed in my 401k yeah, to when you quit pay Phillips. for the CDs, the albums and bought like 5,000 albums, something like that. Yeah. The first 5,000, yeah, because yeah. we, we needed to print another order of them halfway and through. I think when we came home, because uh, I had quit my job, so when we came home, I was basically starting over. So I think I took like eight or 900 out of what we made, and just to, until I started working it out back then. Yeah, because I was still serving but, there. I could leave and come back from tour. Yeah, and like, other than Well, that, I, I was on Warped in, or I was in... Um, I was working at Outback in St. Louis because I was living there at the time before I finally moved, made the move back. And when I made the move back, when I lived out there, I worked at the South County store. There were four in the area. There's North, Cal North, South, East, and West. North was where I started, which was like not a good neighborhood. I was like waiting on like pimps that would come in with their like hose and stuff and like rack up this like $150 tab. Like he's like taking his, his girl out before she goes and he goes tricking for the night. And like, and he would, it'd be like $180 tab and he'd leave me like five bucks as a tip. Jesus and so my tip Christ. share wasn't even covered at that point. Yeah. And so I finally moved down to South County, which was where like the more like rural suburban area was. And they were cool with me going on tour and I'd done it a couple of times and come back. But eventually they were just like, look, like we can't rely on you consistently to be here and come and go as you please. Like this just isn't working out for us. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm Let's not going to go work in another one. Cool. I, no. So I just moved back and I, I picked up my job and I it was new management now. It was new management at, at the Outback here. And so I, I came in and I started serving and bartending. And then I, I did that because I could, they were super cool with it. Corey was already into that style of music. So like, you know, we were. I went to a couple of dates of Warp Tour in the following years after 2012 with him and his wife and yeah. And shout out else. to Corey for basically making our band be functional for those few years. Well, because we had our apartment was right down the street, so we didn't live too far from it. Yeah, we could walk to work if we needed to. It's basically, uh, uh, Relic Hearts sponsored by Outback Steakhouse from 2013 to 16. I remember we took a bunch of freebie stuff, freebie cards to give out to people on the tour. Corey would give us a bunch of stuff to deck out other bands with, give them like free cards yeah. for free apps and shit like that. I think the thing with Warped Tour that unless 
you are in that world. I I think War Tour is like this big tour with all of these bands that happens in the summer and that's what it is. And right. that's what you see it as. But when you are a part of this world and especially like a band guy in that world, you more than likely have come up going to Warp Tour and listening to all those bands. It's kind of like that is the 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 holy grail of where you want to be when you start playing in a band. Or you're like, like a you, small to mid-level size band. Yeah, you want to be on Warp Tour. Like that and there are things that are much bigger than that and more prestigious that you can do as a band for sure, but that's kind of that's where you want to go. And that's yeah. how you know, like, you're on Warp Tour. Like, yeah, I get to tell everybody I'm on fucking Warp Tour. Like, we're doing right. it. And it's pretty cool. So, my first time, it, I'd never been, I never went to Warp Tour. Like, you would have, you have a picture with Travis Barker that was at Warp Tour. Yeah, I met Travis Barker. And I remember Tour. being like, oh, yeah, like, I'd never been. I knew my brother was like trying to get, he had almost gotten his band on it like a few years before we had actually gotten on. And, uh, which I thought was cool. I was like, oh, I was able to do it. Like one of us was able to like get yeah. get on the tour. And uh, I remember the Ernie Ball Battle of the Bands in 2010 was the one that we we lost the local battle of the bands at that venue in Scranton because of whatever the local band that was there that was able to draw more and like put on a good show and they mm -hmm. they won. So they played their that stage or whatever. And then uh, and then we found out that Sunday the week before that we were playing Warp Tour because we won the Ernie Ball Battle of the Bands contest, so we were selected to play. And so everybody was like, oh, yeah, when was the last time you came? And I was like, this is my first time ever being at Warp Tour. So I always loved it. Like, my first time going to the tour was playing the tour. So I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been to a festival like that before. Yeah, it's and then, crazy. And then seeing how it operates, where it's like, you know, 80 bands show up, load in, fill up their tents, uh, pay their merch rate at the end of the day or whatever, get pointed out to where they're going to get their tent set up, and then... You know, eight o'clock headliner goes on. Everybody else is starting to tear down and stuff at that yep. point. You pack up. And then if it's not a long overnight drive and bus calls not till like one or two in the morning, everybody stays and has a barbecue. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. This is like a traveling caravan of gypsy bands that are like out here yeah. doing this. And we met so many different people. We had, we picked up so many different sponsorships. We were having a great time and we were selling a lot of records, but we weren't getting management or any label offers that we liked. And that was why we came back and we're like, okay, look, like I don't want to do it like this anymore. If this is the game we're playing, we need to rethink how we're doing it a little yeah. bit. And so I was like, so I don't want to do this anymore. You guys can keep doing it if you want to. I'm going to start this other project and I would love you guys to come with me and do this and like revamp. But I'm like, I'm not going to force anybody to, everybody's got to kind of agree that this is the direction they want to go. If this is the direction we're going and you got you and Dirk and Scott were like, yeah, like let's, let's do it. And so then we started Relic Hearts before it was named. We just went up and we started demoing stuff that winter. And then we took those demos. I did the co-writes with Ronnie. And then we came back and we started getting those stuff that, you know, shooting videos for that in the late spring to get ready for the releasing over the summer. Yeah. And uh, and then by then it was like, OK, now we were starting to get our feet and figure out what we were going to do. And then we get boss passes away and we have to do this all over again. And now we're at this place where I feel like really – I'm really, really, really pleased and impressed with like the level of, of craftsmanship that's gone into our music now 
more than I ever have been. And I always feel like that when we're writing, but I'm really proud of Spitfire. And I'm, it's wild to me to think that I'm not sick of it after a year and some change of really writing it and rewriting it and reimagining it and remixing, and redoing this and retracking this. And now it's like, it's done. And I'm not sick of it. And that's the first time that's yeah. ever happened because usually you're just drilling it in the studio yeah. like hundreds of times. And then by the time I'm done with the music video, dude, like I've edited and listened <laughs> to the song it. no less than like a thousand times on my own. If I can monetize the amount of times I have to listen to it, there'd be a paycheck and royalties from that. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad that now that's done and we've kind of gotten this process worked out and all the gears have now been lubricated and they've shown been shown how they are going to move and what how things are going to operate and now it's like okay we just got to keep repeating this process this set of processes to get us to the finish line for every song that we have started that we haven't finished yet yeah and we're we're well on the way now so i feel like we've definitely gotten to the point where we're we've gotten it ironed out how we're going to operate and do it yeah we're getting there I like Spitfire a lot. That's to me it, the when you hear the beginning of that, like after it busts in, the first time I heard it was like right after you sent me and Nate that uh, that vocal tester that, mix. No, it was like the Tom Morello like class thing that he put out. Yeah, and yeah. He yeah. like sent us a thing to it and the master class he did yeah. on yeah Nate, on the, like watched that and i don't know if he had been like writing that before that but i know like i had heard it and he had sent it to us like right after he you had sent us that and as soon as i heard that i went oh nate's been listening to that fucking tom morello shit because it's like that guitar in the beginning of it just well the original right did away, sound like that yeah. it's it, it right now away, i was like oh shit this is fucking great well it started out on the six string on his telecaster right after he bought it it was like the first original demo he tracked after he got that telecaster and, he, and like he he got the one he wanted and so i remember being like oh this is so good like i, I want to be able to keep this is there a way we could transpose this over to the seven string to just to get some of those heavier undertones to the guitar and he was like yeah, I don't know, I don't know. And then after we'd done some remixes and gone back and forth, he finally did. So now the new version is that blend of six-string yeah. and seven-string guitar with all the appropriate like accoutrements and layers and, and ambience in it. And, I mean, that it slaps. That song That's is like a banger. The first time, like definitely as Relic Hearts, I think, that we've that I've heard like a demo and it was it was like a different, something different. Like, I don't know how to describe that. Like, as soon as you hear that first 10 seconds of it, it was just like, oh, like, I feel like we've kind of went from like here to here. Yeah. With like, well, and even sending it over to, you know, management now and having them be like, yo, like, yeah. this is the finished version of this. Like, this turn, this, we can do a really rock solid push for this in the fall. Yeah. So we'll have our first like radio single in the fall, which is like epic. Like, I've never, yeah, I want I want to have the uh, that thing you do moment. Right, the, right. <laughs> well, I still like. I watched that. I love that movie. And when I watch that scene, you turn it on right now, and by the end of it, I'll be completely rainy face, like teared up, crying, because every time I see it, like you just think like, man. Someday, like, I'm going to do that. It's going to be me someday. Even, like, almost 40, you still are like, someday, someday, I'm going to be, like, 45 running down the street going, I fucking made it. And it just makes me tear up. They're so fucking happy. And they're just, the best part, they're Steve Zahn and the singer, I think. 
or they drive down the road and just stop in the middle of the street and get out of the fucking car, leave the doors open in the middle of the street and just walk in the store, start fucking screaming. Just no shits given. I'm really excited to dive into what we're going to do to push and promote the song. Like I want to do some pretty off the cuff stuff that like not other, yeah. our other artists aren't really doing and not just like in the music video sense, but in the way we can really kind of generate engagement uh, like on socials, it is weird, right? Like, like at first when we started doing the photo and video elements to, to music, I didn't love it because I was like, this is now like a whole other amount of work that isn't songwriting that yeah. is like, it feels like it's taking from it. But now, I mean, I start kind of visualizing elements that I want to see visually into our music as we're writing it. And so as this one came together, I was like, man, I already can see like the atmosphere of like this video. And so it made it a lot easier to say, I, I don't want to dip below this bar. This is what I want this to look like. That's like the professional media side of what you have to do to kind of accompany yeah. your music. So now I'm looking at like, okay, so how do we get like TikTok is probably not going to be around for a whole, mo a whole lot longer, uh, maybe like another year or two, I would imagine. And while it's like this pinnacle of being able to put something out and have it be discovered, I am working with uh, my buddy Mike to help like develop a release strategy that functions around like two weeks of promotion leading up to it to kind of like anticipate the release. Yeah. Then the release hits. And then there's like another like three to four weeks afterwards where there's still continual promo happening. And so those don't have to look like a lot of the same things that you see on TikTok already. And I actually, I think that that's kind of detrimental to artists to do is to follow what they're seeing on TikTok as like a, as though it's a formula because it doesn't, it works when it's innovative and new. And the second it starts yeah. getting replicated and everybody's doing it, it's not as interesting and it's not as eye catching. And so like there are certain like formulaic structures you can do to your videos to make them more like able to retain engagement and yeah. get people excited. But uh, just like with sales and advertising, we're a generation that is so sick of being advertised to. So like we don't want to be marketed to like a, hey, make sure you check out this song. We want to know why we should give a shit about it immediately. And then if it finds that audience right away, it will then carry. Yeah. So it's like you have to be really clever about how you package your your music for consumption on social media because it's not the same as the way people discover music whenever they hear a song and their best friend's car and they don't know the artist, but they're like, let me pull up Shazam and see who yeah. this is real quick. Or like, who is this? And then you, you hear it and then you add it to one of your playlists and that word of mouth growth. So TikTok social media word of mouth growth is like so much more rapid if you execute the right way. And I, I mean, I've talked to a bunch of different artist coach and artist mentors about their approaches to doing it. And all of them circle back on like, you just have to be authentically you. And at one point it was like this discussion with Relic Hearts where it was like, how do we brand ourselves? Like, what are we? I don't know that we're ever gonna, you can't like come out of the gate and be this like mysterious group or mysterious artist without having people I following you already. Talked to, I don't remember what her name was. She called and talked to us last year that was working with Jason uh, and about branding and a bunch of stuff like that. Oh, 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 oh. Um, I worked with her on the I Voted stuff for uh, Kate Truscott. She was looking for a videographer to assemble videos. And, um, oh, man, I'm blanking on her name right now. I yeah, feel so terrible. I forget what it was. But I remember telling her she had said 
something along those lines. Like, how do you like look at relic cards? Like, how would you define them? And I forget exactly what he what I had said, but it was along the lines of like when you think of like uh, like the working class man. I feel like that is like relic hearts. We're like the the working class man's band, you know. Nilu, Nilu was her name. We were talking to her, and she kind of put like a brand guideline sheet where we kind of like had to go through and answer some questions about us. And like, yeah, that was the one angle that really stuck out. Like, we are really kind of this working class band, and and honestly, kind of like the last bastion of like not being ashamed of it and not try. Like, I do photography yeah. and videography. We all have super different jobs. Like, we all do all kinds of different things, and we still coalesce and come together on our music and and i think that there's something really empowering about that because it's not it's like a of the people by the people kind of uh, yeah. mentality behind our music because it's like we are this voice for uh people that like this style of music one but also two can identify with like Real we've we've never been life. like the too cool for school band after a show like we always just yeah. shoot the shit with people and talk to people like i love that we don't treat ourselves like we're better than anybody or that we're above them or that we're, you know, like we're not separate from, we're, yeah, we're no. literally a part of the same, you know, life ecosystem of like going through the motions and doing all the same shit that everybody has to do. Like, and not that other bands don't do that. Cause I think some bands don't, yeah, some, some bands, bands are terrible at that, but there are a lot of bands that are very good at it. I think it's a little bit different though, when you are an established band that has had, success as opposed to us not that we haven't had success but still trying to chase like the initial success that we would like to have yeah i mean it's good to set a bar for yourself right like we know yeah. we're, what we're after and so that's good you have to have a clear vision for where you're trying to get to to be able to execute in the first place yeah. like it's reverse engineering if you see where you want the end product to be you can kind of reverse engineer how it is that we got to get to there so that the music and the visuals all line up with yeah. what we want but for us it's like uh i don't think you could really pull it out of us like out of our bones like we are just who we are this band like we just yeah. are these people and i mean I, I love that the people we interact with that do like us and and for all the people that have supported, you know, Relic Hearts since day one and are finding us out along the way. Like, I'm, I, I love seeing the comments on YouTube whenever we post something new and people are like, oh, I was here before they were at this number of subscribers or yeah, like, oh, I was a fan cool. before people knew who they were. Like, there's that faith in us that uh, I think is kind of really uplifting and in a otherwise thankless endeavor right because yeah. with music as saturated as it is it feels like it doesn't matter how much you put out you're always a drop in the pond and so it makes yeah. it so much more important to kind of figure out how to make a bigger splash and to do that without being like you know shock rock where you're like you're you're dressing a certain way or yeah. your stick is like you you know piss on each other on stage or whatever it is that like bands do all kinds of wild stuff to like just get attention and make a name for themselves and that seems kind of gimmicky and I, I feel like it's one thing if you're doing that to like market yourselves but like if that's not who you really are then yeah. like you know it's not real it's not like this is just a shtick this is like that's uh, Blink-182's thing basically when I had started listening to them was there's three dudes that say a bunch of terrible fucking words and joke around about sex and dick and fart jokes. And that was kind of like their thing, but it was also like, it wasn't like they were getting up there and just like 
writing down jokes before their show so they could come out and say them like they were just up there being dumbasses that's who they were right right, and i I think that's why it worked for them Uh, because i i look back now and think about some of the things that they have said on stage just like randomly and how like in today's world you go back and look at some of that stuff and how people haven't been like what the fuck was wrong with you? Like, you can't say that shit. And I mean, I'm very glad that nobody has done that because I don't want that to be a thing for them. Uh, obviously they won't, they're huge, but it, that's just, that was kind of how they made a name for themselves. And right. it wasn't like anybody was like seeing through anything because it's just genuinely who they were and right. it worked for them. And if they, weren't genuinely those people, I don't think they would be where they're at now because people know, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, you know, like, I think about, like, when we first started writing these demos, our goal was get a handful of these demos done and then pitch them to Feldman to see if he'd want to do a record with us. And, like, we could do that, and it would be, like, a pricey endeavor. And or maybe he really likes it and he just wants points and he's going to take a lot of points on whatever it is that he does. And now I think it's like that's still something like that's I mean, John Feldman is still a bucket list producer. Like I would love to do even yeah, just a handful of songs with him. I, I would I would love to just be able to say that I had like the opportunity to work with him on a song. Like if we had a song that he had worked on us with that I if the band ended like after that and I could say like, yeah, I got to do this song with him. I, not that I would be okay with the being, being over at that point, but I, that would be something that I would be very, very proud of. Right. Like it's a bucket list item for sure. Do you know, uh, what are like the, what's like your top five Feldman albums? Do you have top five or even a top 10? For Feldman, California, uh, it's honestly like it sucks because Tom's not on that album, but it is like one of my favorite Blink albums. Like it's just so good, and I think a lot of that, without me knowing it at the time, was that he produced it, and I just unknowingly am hearing Feldman, and it's like at this point, like I can almost pick out when something starts playing. It has like a sound to it. And I go, oh, I think that's I think Feldman might have done this. And almost every time I look it up and I'm right. Uh, That one, uh, he didn't do the whole album, but uh, Black Swan. No, 311 Mosaic. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know he did that record. Not the whole thing. Only I think like six songs on it, maybe. But the first song is one of the ones he did. And. I didn't know that he did that album and 15 seconds into that song, I was like, who produced this? And Zane looked it up and was like, Feldman did. And I, I fucking knew it. That's crazy. The first record he did that I remember falling in love with was probably The Used. Yeah. And then Page Avenue with Story of the Year was like the next record yeah, after that. That's probably in that five. Yeah, I mean, Page Avenue definitely has to be in that five for sure. And then they did, they've done, he's done a couple of records since, obviously, 
over the years that I was like, oh, I forgot he did that. His uh, yeah, discography is like he's, he's touched a lot of my favorite so records. So many people. There, I mean, there's so many good ones. Uh, uh, those are probably like the top three, I would say. I feel like those are also like more recent too. Yeah, Good Charlotte, the one he did with them, I thought was fucking awesome. I remember doing that uh, the Sleeping with Sirens tour in like 2018, and we they had that one off date at Winterfest in uh, Salt Lake City or outside of Salt Lake City at uh, Park City, Utah, and it was like a preliminary thing leading up to the Winter Olympics. And uh, Good Charlotte's camera crew came out, but all oh, their sensors yeah. on their cameras were too cold to be able to turn on, so they wouldn't they couldn't film. So they at last second they just asked me if I would edit yeah. a, a live performance video to put together for them. So I was like, out of nowhere, I got thrown into doing a video for Good Charlotte. I've actually never seen them live still. Really? That's weird. Yeah. I'm surprised you actually haven't ever seen them. I remember uh, Benji and Joel coming on the Sleeping With Sirens bus and being like, holy fuck. Like high school me would be freaking the fuck out mm -hmm. right now. And they were so cool. They I were probably chill. still would, honestly. I think it'd be pretty cool to meet them. I like I feel like it's hard to not be a punisher around these guys because you're like you see them. You're like, hey, you know, you wrote like so many people's favorite record growing up. And uh, but I, I've learned to just be like, hey, like, I really love all the music you've done. Like, yeah. I really appreciate the music you wrote that, like, helped me out when it was here and there. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be a, too much of a punisher, but like, I think it's awesome that you you, know, you did what you did and that you're you're still yeah. doing it. And just I like to just to say, like, thank you, like. A lot of those artists were like formative artists for me. Good Charlotte was definitely one of them. You know, Taking Back Sunday was definitely one. Some 41 was one. Newfound Glory, definitely one. Uh, yeah, the the drive-through bands were my thing. New, I would actually love to see Newfound Glory do an album with John Feldman. I think that would be phenomenal. So he's definitely a bucket list producer. Um for for me that i would love to have us get in like you said even just to do like one or two songs with yeah it'd be worth whatever whatever it is to do it it would just be worth it to do it because like i it's like an accolade that i would love to have under our yeah, collective band belt kind of my thing is i even if we go do a song with him and i mean you work with john feldman for a reason because he does what he does but even if we went and did a song with him and it phased out and nobody gave a shit about it but we gave a shit about it like that would be really all it is for me. And the songs he did with Sleeping With Sirens, I was a big fan of too. Yeah, they were good. He's just like, there's just like nothing that he does. Whatever it is about the, the thing just, that he puts he, in there, he is He knows like, what he's doing. Yeah. He's, just, he's fucking, he's got an ear for it. I don't know. He's good. I love him. He is. He's like this scene's Rick Rubin, basically. <laughs> like uh, he's able to pull yeah. out of them what is really great about them and really kind of accentuate it in a way uh, that is yeah. like catchy and memorable. I just listened to a podcast with him on it like last week and he was talking about, he kind of goes into it a little bit of how he like got into doing production and he is just fucking, when it comes to like pop music, he has such a good sense for it and he can just do it. I don't know. We talked to somebody else. I don't remember who it was, but I remember them telling us they were working with them and they said like the dude never fucking stops. Like they went out to eat with him or something. And the whole time he's just like pulling out his phone, like putting ideas in there and you can constantly see him just like going like this and the wheels are turning in his head and he's got like a melody that he's got to fucking put down. 
and I'm just like, damn, like, I just, I want to be around you. I, that's fucking incredible. Like, I want to know how your brain fucking works, dude. Well, kind of the kind of creativity like that is infectious, man. Like you, when you're around people that are creative to that degree, you'll find yourself kind of banging on a few extra cylinders that you didn't know you had. Yeah. And that can kind of like elevate the way you kind of approach your own writing. I, I deal well being around people that are as creative, if not more creative than me, because it's like there's room to learn and absorb. And then there's also like room to input. Yeah. And I feel like we would do well in that situation with him. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely a bucket list producer for me. Um, is there anything? What have you been listening to lately? I started listening to the Turnstile after we saw them at the Blink show. They, yeah, they're good. They're actually really good. I like. I'd heard the band name, and I like. I. It's not like I hadn't heard them or heard of them. I just never really got into them. But seeing them live, I was like, "Damn, these guys fucking rip." Yeah, they were really good. They were really good live, man. And like, obviously, shout out to whoever was doing their front of house for them because they sounded phenomenal yeah. in an outdoor stadium, which is not always easy to pull off. Uh, you know, I mean, that was probably my biggest gripe about Warp Tour was that it was outdoor venue sound. And so yeah. it was like, it feels like it kind of falls flat a little bit because there's just no way to really kind of bring the body that you want to whenever the sound is able to just dissipate in every direction yeah. as soon as it comes out. But I mean, when you're also setting up, tearing down different place every day for doing that, it's still pretty good. Especially considering you have like, what, seven stages set up in this area. And for the most part... You can be at this stage and not hear what's happening at this stage to a point where it's not like, well, I'm here listening to them, but all I hear is simple plan over here. You know, like there's, yeah. you can hear it, but if this band's playing, it's not drowning out this band and right. vice versa. You know, like they make it work somehow. That was the other weird thing about Warp Tour is like the people that would stop by. Like D. Snyder stopped by the one date in Jersey, <laughs> yeah. and he, his daughter was there to see Blackville Brides, and he was like, "Yeah, I just wanted to see what they're all about. Like, she's super into them, so I'm gonna come and see him." And so here's fucking D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, and I'm like, "Oh wow, that's wild." Yeah. And that was the same summer that the bass player from Simple Plan told me a dead baby joke that was like, I remember I was like, "That is the." best worst one i've ever heard and i can't remember what it was like i think i trauma blocked it out of my yeah. brain but you just meet these people and they're they're just they're it's funny you realize like uh like so, was it some 41 no simple plan they had the little scooters ripping around on the yeah. tour with and uh dirk would like <laughs> go over and like jack their fucking little miniature motorcycle and run around i have video of him of doing that yeah it, it's like this thing that I used to think might embarrass me about like Dirk was really just that he could connect with anybody yeah, and he just sure doesn't does. give a shit. And I, I, it was in a place where I was like, Oh, don't talk to that person. Like you don't, you don't want to, well, I don't know what you're going to say. Like, what are you going to say? And, uh, and so it was always funny that like he would leave and come back and like, Oh, Hey, uh, less than Jake invited us over to play in their poker <laughs> yeah. tournament and they're back in their bus. And then, uh, you know, pepper was like basically, giving us props all summer because we were taking care of them. They're, you know, Hawaiian band. They're like a big family style with the way they wanted yeah. to like eat their food and be treated. And so like we, we just got, we got like an extra level of props and respect for just kind of meeting people with where they were and not expecting anything more from them. And, uh, that's like the best thing you can do if you're a smaller band and you're meeting yeah. your idols is like not be a fucking demanding little dickhead and trying to like weasel your way in and talk about your project. It's like, this is like not the time for that. This is not the place for that. And I feel like we had a pretty good grasp on that. And maybe we lost some opportunities because we didn't pursue certain things heavier than we could have. But I'm also glad that I don't feel like we left a bad taste in anybody's mouths for like 
having to, you know, deal with us or, you know, being around us or us being around them on tour. Just all time low. Probably still finding fucking CDs in that bus. No, that was that was obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, like leaving CDs all over their bus. Other than that. The best part of that was getting uh, Alex Gaskarth to come and meet Scott while he was passed out drunk in the van. And he no, the best part of that was that he didn't fucking believe us for half of the next day until we finally went, all right, dickhead, here's the picture. Wait, wait a minute. Let me see that. Are you fucking kidding me? I can't fucking believe this. That was fucking great. Yeah. Don't meet your idols when you're blackout wasted and you've puked all over yourself and like the van and the floor and the area around you. It literally smelled like vomit in our fucking van. Yeah. I was like, why don't you come over here and meet him real quick? I was just just sit in the front driver's seat and just take a picture right next to him. He's like, okay. That's cool. Yeah. He got the makeup for that. Last day of that tour, he got to go out and play Dear Maria. Yeah, our last day on that tour. Yeah, that's right. He did. He went out and he played Dear Maria. And uh, that. You, and it was so funny because like you get to see how somebody would operate if they were playing on stages of that size or yeah. crowds of that size. And Scott, was a, he was really great at performing. Uh, like, he, Literally looked like he should have been out there. Like I remember him running out there and just doing that little fucking bounce bullshit he does while he plays. Like he was just normal. I feel like as we move forward and we're getting into the summer and we're working on these next songs, what do you want to kind of see come out of our, I, I think like for us, we do pretty good at self-reflecting as a band and being like, okay, what do we want to do? How do we like, we're very aware of how, good band dynamics are like essential you can't have like somebody in your group that's like a the naysayer or that doesn't agree with the vision or see stuff because it it just holds you all up so like yeah. we've we've kind of battled and and conquered this idea of like okay we got to find a way to be on the same page together so that when we're doing things that we're trying to accomplish we're not like we're not trying to do it by pulling in opposite directions and we do we do pretty well. I feel like we we know uh, where we yeah. want to go, and we have we a lot do of the a great same job at that. What's that? We do a great job at that. It, but it's important. I think a lot of bands don't realize like your internal band dynamics are the they're the ability for you to see what your possibility for output is. Yeah. And so like if you've got a dynamic like a, somebody in your group that is just not pulling their weight, like we've had we've let people go. Like we like Scott, we wanted to give him like simple things that, to do that were like in his wheelhouse. And he just like was, I think he was just burnt out. Yeah. He had just reached that point, I think. And, and it's so it's like, okay, all right. Like I get that, but like, I can't, I need help. Like I can't do it all. And at that point I was, so it was like a dude, I, you know, I love you. You're like a brother to me, but like, if you can't even pull your bare minimum essential weight here and doing this thing that helps me get things done, like how am I supposed to like justify that you're here? You're, you're just showing up for practice and this and that and the other thing. Like, I think it's really important that bands audit the people that are in their band and say like, look, like at a certain point, it doesn't matter how long they've been a part of the project that they're not good for it. That you shouldn't, yeah. you shouldn't keep them around. And we've, it's a hard talk to have, but luckily I feel like as adults, we've gotten to the point where we're not afraid to have them and like make adjustments if we need to. And we, and we have. Yeah. So I hope that more bands will do that. Cause I, I know there's a lot of bands that are, are locally really really good but they just don't really like push themselves because they're maybe like comfortable yeah and i don't think we've ever allowed ourselves to feel comfortable we always feel like there's this bar we haven't reached or this level we haven't gotten to and so we yeah. just keep pushing and striving in that direction and by doing that we keep coming across these different like accomplishments along the way like just by doing one thing it leads to another thing even if that thing doesn't take place for like eight or nine years later like us going to indonesia was because of a group of people that were promoters 
had a group of people in their circle that really liked our music and were like, you should get this band to come and play. Yeah. And then we get the email and I'm like, okay, I, like, I didn't <laughs> I know remember. if it was bullshit or not. And then when we get it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell them we're going to do it if we want to. And everybody was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, okay. We're going to Indonesia. This sure is shit. Yeah. Then we sat down and we confirmed and we had like, then we had to get everybody's passports lined up and, and scanned and everything and sent over so they could take care of getting our work visas and stuff. And, uh, you know, then you and I did the, the announcement video. And so, and they wanted us to do an announcement video, but like we have this production level that we kind of bring to everything that is not standard for a lot of, a lot of artists. And it's because I took the time to dive into that, that world. And then that ended up changing my career path. Like I quit bartending and serving altogether to do freelance full time because I enjoyed it way more. And it gives me way more free time to work on music, which is like the true passion. Yeah. And so then as I'm growing and developing that way, I'm elevating what I'm bringing to our production level to everything we do video wise. And I know it's like, Hey, we got to film this thing. And everybody's like, Oh, son of a bitch. Like, Oh, we got to go. I like, you have to drive like an hour and some change and Dirk has to drive, you know, depending on where we're, we're meeting up and doing these things. It's yeah. like, it, there's like this investment of time and energy that is not always the songwriting, creative, fun part of being a, in a band. Well, most of it isn't. Yeah, I think people forget that, right? Like the music doesn't come from nowhere. There is time spent that's not glorious and like glorified yeah, I in, mean, I, in being I an artist. That's like a, a lot of it. I mean, what you get to see and hear is the fun part of it. Right. Everything else is mostly a pain in the ass but i would still take all of it over you know your normal day job but it still is a lot of you see and hear the fun stuff and everything else is like the job part of it right and i think for me it took there was a period where i wasn't having fun with it and that also kind of hurt us because it was like there goes our uh, constant influx of like video content that yeah. we can create and do stuff with. And so it be kind of, it, it got to a point where I was just feeling a little burnout myself. And I realized I was not letting myself love the process and be excited about it anymore. Cause it gets hard when it becomes routine and it's like, okay, this song's done. Now we got to go get together. I got to create the, the session for the music video shoot. I got to go down, shoot it, set up lights, do all that, blah, blah, blah. And then turn around and edit it in post. It's like it's that part is not always the most fun. And so it or it can't be it it can just not be fun sometimes. And so it got to a point where I was like, yeah, I really got to find a way to fall in love with this process or I'm going to just kind of slow down on doing this. And that's only going to hurt us. And so it became a matter of like, okay, well, I think part of it is I don't love visually what I'm working with all the time. So how can I improve that? So it started with lighting. I was like, okay, well, like lighting is the, the biggest modifier when it comes to photo and video and how you look at an image and how you perceive what you're looking at. And so I kind of started diving. I'm like, I don't care if I have to build a lighting rig. I don't care if I have to do this or that or the other thing. I want to elevate visually what we're doing in a way that actually makes it more fun to work with because then I have more nuanced things I can play with in editing that make it look even better on the back end. And so like the, the best music video I think we've done recently is probably the Legends Never Die music video. But lighting wise, I really love the Post Malone video. Like it was really, really like bright and clear. They had like all the program lighting and stuff like that. So I told Sam yesterday, I'm gonna reach out to Matt, uh, their guitar player and be like, hey, I need you to walk me through your guys' lighting setup. Cause like, I'm gonna need to implement something like that. Yeah, that one, I didn't really like pay attention to that. It does look really good. Well, they were able to do scene changes with color. So it was like certain colors for the verses and like slow moving washes and then like, more erratic, crazy looking lights for the choruses and yeah. stuff like that. That made it way more fun. And 
and, and to edit too. Like I edited the video for, for both of us so that they didn't have to. And they loved how it turned out. I loved how it turned out. And it, you know, it was like a good fun project, yeah. but legends was like the first one where I kind of felt like I stuck a vibe for us. Like I felt like I caught a good visual element of how I, we like to be seen. Yeah. And now I just want to kind of keep working on elevating that. If I can keep making that better and better, then we will get to a point where it's like even more fun to work with the videos and post. And so I'm starting to accrue like lights and things like that, that are going to help do that over the next couple of months. And I want them because one for our live shows and yeah. then two for, you know, the ability to have better visual production in our videos. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, I, I don't really have any pity or empathy for the bands that are just like, I don't want to learn how to do this thing. Like I'm a music guy. Like I write <laughs> yeah. I this, I that. I'm like, bro, you're in the wrong fucking industry because yeah. if you think you can just write music and release it and just get Especially discovered. Now. Yeah, man. Yeah. Like there's so much more that goes into it and you can't just rest on your laurels of like, well, this song's really good. Okay. It says who, like by what metric, like, you know, are you challenging yourself or are you just, are you complacent and saying like, yeah, like, this is a really good song. I know this is a good song. And it's like, it, okay, but what are you doing to get it seen? Like, what are you going to do to get people to be aware of it? You can't just play to everybody you want to try to gather as a fan. Yeah. It's a slow means of doing it, especially when you've got the internet available. So it's like a lot of artists need to start adopting that mentality. You got to start reverse engineering where you want to be and what you got to do to get there. And sometimes it's going to mean you're going to have to pick up extra skills. I can't even tell you how many artists in this area have reached out to me to be like, Hey, like for questions about gear or questions about lighting, yeah. questions about camera settings or whatever. And like, Hey, can you help us with this? Or like, would you be able to do how much to shoot a video for this? And for a while I was doing like, my price point was like, I was doing $500 performance music videos and like they got to pick a place and if it's outside, it's outside. If it's inside, they gotta have, it's gotta be lighting oriented. Like there's work that goes into it, yeah. but I make them do all the work and I'm like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to shoot and I'm going to edit. That's going to be my role for $500. Like that is at least more worth it in the hourly amount of time. I'm going to have to spend doing it all with set up and tear down, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, for sure. Then it is the latter. But realistically, like if you're not willing to pay that, and there were a lot of bands that were like, that's a little steep. Like it's just this video. I'm like, well then you do it and yeah. then you tell me how much time and energy it takes for you to get it done and tell me that somebody who is making what I make doing this professionally should be okay with taking significantly less to help you out with this project that you don't want to help yourself out yeah. with. Like if you don't realize you need to invest in yourself at every stage of your career, I can't help you. I can't help you see that. Like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand it. And we've given like everything. There have been like literal blood. There's been sweat. There's been tears. There's been money. There's time. There's all kinds of energy and effort put into it. And it's like, it's great because still when we release things, I feel like the, I love showing people our music and showing them our videos. And they're like, this is your band. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a really good reaction to get when people get, you know, the, the, the idea of being like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm in a band. And they're like, oh like that, that's a real that's usually how it starts that's how it starts and then you show them and they're like oh. damn this is you guys and i want i want more artists to strive to meet that bar because i think it one it feels good like selfishly it fucking feels good to feel yeah. it's like this pick me validation that i <laughs> i don't want to have in my body but it does exist in there it's nice to be noticed and and uh you know appreciated for what you do but there are some artists that are just like I don't care how good you are. If I can't find you somewhere or like what I listen to on your record doesn't sound as good as you playing live, none of this is going to help me. Yeah. So like you're mixing your master 
And dude, you know, we've released a lot of music as a, in different bands and in different capacities where I'm like, this next to this other song I really like that I think kind of sounds like it. They don't sound anything yeah. alike. Like the stuff we got out of Ohio and we went to the Chin Music oh, Studios yeah. or whatever. That was like not great mixes. Yeah. And no, I loved all the people wasn't. I worked with, but they weren't great. Yeah. And the songs could have obviously been, you know, you know, construct, you know, compositionally could have been elevated in a lot of better ways. But like I I think we always kind of knew we weren't hitting a bar. Yeah. And then when we finally started to, we were like, this is okay, now we're getting there. And it, we realized it came down to our mix and our master. It wasn't necessarily the writing and the recording side of it, it is like the production, the post-production and yeah. mixing and mastering is like that's what is the final selling point for your music for when people hear it. And like Jordan said, when I had him on the podcast, like you don't want to have somebody aim being your mix with another song, one of their favorite songs on a playlist. And yours sounds like shit compared yeah. to their other favorite song. Cause they're going to notice like, Oh, this doesn't sound as good. And sometimes that can work if it's, it's intentional, but if it's not, and it's just you not sounding that great, then that's on you. And uh, I yeah. feel like we we finally we were able to figure that out, and, and I know there are a lot of artists that are like, "Yeah, I can get this guy locally. He, he'll do it for fifty bucks." <laughs> yeah, I'm like, "You get the fifty bucks special, and then you tell me how that sounds on the back end." Whenever you like, I'll I'll stack our mixes up to a lot of people's. I don't care. Like, I'm like, "All right, which do you think? Which of these sounds better?" No, it's obviously going to be an opinion based thing. It's not like one anybody's right or wrong there. Yeah. But you over time and numbers, like enough people see or hear or listen to something you can see where people would be like, oh yeah, this is, this definitely sounds better. You know, it's, it's not the Pepsi challenge, right? Like it's yeah. not like a flavor thing. It's an audible thing. So when you listen to it and you're like, yeah, this sounds better than this for sure. Then why aren't you reaching for that? Like, why aren't you, if I'm telling you like there are people you can go to, it's, it costs more for the mix and the master, but it's worth it with the, the final product. Like to me, I just never understood that. Like my final impression of something I've wrote and spent a year's worth of time on, I'm not going to shit the bed when it comes to the mix and master phase yeah. ever, ever, ever again. Because I'm like, I realize how important that is to making it sound the way I want it to sound. So it's perceived the way I want it to be perceived. And there are just some people are like, that's so expensive. It's like, this is your art. This is your I, yeah, livelihood. I, just, I, I would rather pay the, the more money for in that situation like without even thinking about it, it would be a, a question you know so i just don't get it i don't understand like if i told somebody that they need to have a side like twenty five hundred three thousand dollars or so to push each single for a month to see the damage that they want to see with like the outreach and the, the you know the distance that their music can go I know so many bands so many groups that would never pay that amount of money and like yet i look at us and i'm like hey just so we know in September or October, if we don't have like label support or this or whatever, um, we I want to know everybody wants to contribute towards this. And I'm like, I'm going to drop probably a grand myself, if not more, just to make sure that Spitfire gets not just the radio attention that it, it deserves, but that it gets the length of time on the radio that it deserves. Yeah. So that it's going for a while. And my goal is, you know, my I guess like to put our strategy out on blast is to let you know whenever we release Spitfire, I'm assuming it'll probably be early October is what I'm looking at right now. And then I want that to push solid for like October and November. December dips off for everybody. Yeah. And so does January for the most part. And then I want to be right back at it in like the end of January, dropping the next single. And then I want to have it going for like two months into March. And then another one that drops in April and it goes carries us into like June. And then another one that drops into, you know, June or July that carries through the rest of that summer. That's four songs throughout the year. If we hit the radio on each one of those, no saying that we definitely will. But if yeah. we do, 
then you could be on the radio as a new band, unsigned, completely on un, you know untethered, and go for a year straight in the stratosphere of music where people are, are listening to it in a place where I feel like our genre specific style of audience is yeah. going to be really actively at like people that listen to our style of music will listen to it on Octane or Sirius or XM radio or whatever. And then when they're not in their car and listening to it there, they'll look it up on Spotify, yeah. but the ability to gather the attention first is the most important part. Like yep. we're all in this exposure game. We want attention. We want to be able to see people to see our shit so they can stream it and like it and, and, you know, learn to love it. And then, you know, by proxy us yeah. and, and attached to that. And if you're not willing to, like, that's what a label does. It provides you the money and resources to have this, you know, infrastructure of, you know, radio PR and, and campaigning that makes sure your music gets heard and people that aren't signed that don't want to invest in it. It's like you, okay, but you're, you're basically pissing in the wind and I don't know how yeah. to tell you that. Like, I don't mean it to sound bad. I, I want to see everybody succeed, but if they're not willing to invest in themselves or in their art, it's like, I can't, I can't sit here and feel bad for you because you don't like the fact that this is the way the industry is. Like I get people don't want to pay for conversion ads on Spotify because the, ter the, the immediate return on your interest and your investment is not, it's not commensurate to what you spend. Like yeah. it, we just got the bill for like our month of last month. It was uh, 166 bucks in conversion ads. But for that, how many streams did we get? How many new followers for the band did we get? Like I can see those metrics in our analytics. That number goes up. It creeps up slowly. Yeah, That's fine. But that's a consistent, that's a follower oh, yeah. now. Now when we Keeps drop something, up, they're going to get a push for it. And then our, our June uh, Spotify discovery mode campaign went live on June 1st. And on the 11th, I'll get to see how it's performing so far. But our numbers are already up, like already. Every day I check it, it's going up like almost 100 uh, in monthly listeners. So in 30 wow. days, that's 3,000. Yeah. Okay, that's a small – that seems small. But that, that actually – what I can't see because it's a, such a short sample of time is one month is where that curve is going. But at like six months, you'll be able to see where that yeah. curve is trending. And if you keep following that path, it keeps growing and keeps growing. And a lot of bands don't like, oh, well, it just seems like I have to pay for people to see my music. Like, you're doing that whether you like it or not. <laughs> I, I guess, I don't know. When you don't, when you break down the walls of, like, how the music industry actually works, like, you're, you, you want to get signed, you're basically just, like, replacing what you want to do yourself. Right. Like, that's... I mean, I guess when I was 18 and 19, like, I didn't really know, I guess maybe I thought I did, but looking back on it, like, I had no idea what a record label actually did. It was just, I'm in a band, you get signed, and then you get to do the things you want to do as a band. Like, right. you, you've made it. But when you actually, I can remember when it finally, like, clicked to me that, like, oh, this is that it all... A record label was basically a loan company for a band. Yeah, for artists. Like, <laughs> that's what that is. And I'm just going like, you don't really have to have that. It, yeah. It's a help. But, and I mean, they, they do more than that. But, well, good labels do, right? Because yeah. like, we saw plenty of labels that were basically drowning bands on their roster like yeah. they were puppies. One in each hand, and it's because they don't have any ability to. Like, I was surprised at some of the ones I've, some of the labels I've gone through where I'm like, I feel like this staff has no fucking clue what they're doing. And like, 
with social media constantly changing, marketing needs to be changing. And so you can't just rely on being like, okay, this is the model we have set up. And if you, we sign you, it's a 50, 50 split on publishing. So whatever we, you, you know, we spend, you have to spend. And yeah. if we spend it on your behalf, we got to recoup it from your album sales. And so then it becomes like a, okay, but then the infrastructure of people at that label better be banging on all cylinders. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, like I, that's why we didn't sign for anybody that we talked to for Relic Hearts. It was like, why like there i don't i've seen bands on their label that they're just not doing anything yeah. for you gave them fifty thousand dollars to record this record great but like now they got to recoup that and most artists aren't going to make that 50k back it's not easy to do and you have to spend money to do that so it just seems like a, if you have a method or a process that works especially in the world of tiktok you can have a song that goes out and go viral and spend significantly less and get way more value out of the budget and so for us, I'm like, I'm really looking forward to thinking outside of the box now that Spitfire is done as we're getting like the visual assets for like the, like I said, the professional media, like yeah. the, the legit music video done. I'm looking forward to diving into, okay, so what can we do that is going to be funny and interesting and engaging for people to watch that will then get them to go and check out this song. And so that's the phase that I'm, I'm in now for that song while simultaneously getting into demo writing for some of these other songs that we have on deck. Yeah. Like we have that. The, the demo title is New OG. I don't know what it would be called, but that song is really good. Yeah. And so I'm really excited to see how that one gets fleshed out. And then between that and some of the ones that we want to kind of revisit, you re revisit all together and do like a re-compositional, like, you know, gathering of all of that to redo a song. Yeah. Those Especially are now be, with Steve. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Good to be, it'll be good to get him in on the mix. And... And he's eager to do it. He's really yeah. excited to do it. And that's the other part, man. Like your band better be fucking excited about what you're doing. And if they're yeah. not and they're just like, eh, I'll show up or eh, I'll do it. It's like that's got a shelf life and it doesn't last as long as you think it does. Yeah. And we've been there, right? There are people that have floated in and out of bands with us over the years where it's just like, OK, this yeah, guy's okay. here. And they enjoy like the the perk of like playing the show and the attention they get afterward. But they don't really care about putting in any of the work that helps us get to bigger shows, yeah. better results on music videos, better, you know, streaming numbers and everything else. And like for all of our shortcomings, maybe when it comes to the world of social media, we do a lot of things a lot better than a lot of other bands do. Yeah, I think so. Well, Nicholas, we've rated it to three hours so far. No shit. We've been sitting here for three fucking hours. Yeah, man. It's been wow. three hours we did this podcast. Holy shit. Um, so that's, I can't. Damn, that's like. Second longest I've ever sat and still in one spot. I know. That's like the real accomplishment here is Ooh. that you're still sitting. I'm actually yeah. surprised you aren't up and pacing at this point. I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to shift a little I just, bit. I can I feel myself. like the last 20 minutes. I'm like really getting antsy. <laughs> well, dude, I think that it's crazy to think that, you know, in 2005 in December, we sat down Christmas Eve Eve and we met each other and you were just, I think you were back from tour or something and you were just looking forward to spending time with your girlfriend, Natalie, yeah. who connected us. And uh, you were bummed that I was lingering around and hanging out because she was just a homie and you just wanted to be with your girlfriend alone. And I just kept you around cackling and laughing. And then we ended up becoming good friends. And then yeah, we started doing music finally together, you know, years later. And we've been doing it ever since. And dude, we I feel like I... I say a lot of people are my really close friends or like one of my best friends. You are definitely like, like at the top of the roster because of the things that we've gone through together. 
And yeah. I mean, the highs and the lows, man. Like we've had some really cool moments where our, in Indonesia it was fun. Like a high for me was like just us on the way to yeah. the venue and we went and walked and we got that dude jumped off his yeah, moped and was like, relic cards, relic cards, can I take a picture? Uh, picture, picture. And he came over and took a picture with us. And then like, you know, the lows are, you know, moments like waking up the next morning after boss passed away and my mom's on the phone like hey nick's calling me he's trying to get a hold of you and i you know she hands me her phone and you're like are you sitting down and i was like what and you're like you're about to be awake yeah i and i just woke up it was not the way to wake up that day for sure i do not recommend 10 out of 10 do not recommend Uh, yeah i couldn't get a hold of you i had i called your mom and i was like i need you to find him and put him on the phone yeah, like, I don't care where he's at, what he's doing. And she was like, he sounds like he's wor- he sounds like he's uh, upset about something. And I was like, oh, OK. And so I picked it up and like, you know, of all the things I could possibly think of, I, I just didn't think that was what it was going to be. You're like, boss yeah. is dead. And I was like, what? And like, I, I just like it's hard to quantify like our friendship in any other way than when we get to a point where we are finally able to like look out and feel the sun on our faces and really enjoy everything that we're doing without all of the struggle and the work, which may never come to that degree. It may be a lot of this forever and that's fine. I couldn't be more happy to do it with you at my side because you keep, you've always kept like a level head. You've been this like grounding force of nature in every project we've ever done together. And I'm really, really glad that, you know, you were able to get your dad into the studio to do the podcast with me in December. I'm really, really glad we did that. And, uh, you know, I just like, it's crazy because I got so close to your family and to you and, you know, I've seen you at your highs and lows. You see me at my highs and lows and the fact that we're like still, you know, best friends and we still fucking are at it together and there's no, never been any love lost or any like, you know, slowing down in our appreciation for one another. I hope we, never lose that and i don't think we will if we have no, it at this point i don't think so i think we we make each other better we try right work better with each other well thanks for coming on the podcast nick walters i'm really really glad son of wade son of wade is that of house walters son of wade house walters thanks for coming on man i'm looking forward to releasing some new music this summer and getting some new original music out this fall and we'll have to have the, I need to get the whole band on it. We got to get the whole yeah, group to come in and come on. Yeah, uh, do that. That's one of the next moves is getting everybody's asses up in these chairs for one of these. And we can sit down and just talk about like all the things that we've got going on. So we'll talk to you in a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. 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 When we're able to make everybody's schedules work. Yep. Right after <sighs> the next band practice. Whenever that is. No, we got to start though. We got to get back into it because uh, there's some stuff in the fall that I want to get us ready for that. Yeah. That we need to be just kind of on point. And now that Spitfire's back, we can actually integrate it into the set and have the actual shit that we're working with to, to you know, to rehearse with. Yeah. Well, dude, thanks for coming on. I love you to death. You know you're like a brother to me. Yeah, you're like my little middle, little, little middle brother. Middle little brother. Yeah. Yeah. I accept like, that role. Like the brother in between. Yeah, but I'm like dragging you around a lot too. You're like my dumb older brother. I just got to fucking <laughs> wheel you around and be like this fucking dickhead. That's me as a brother, the dumb older brother. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. I'm glad we finally got to do it. I was glad you said you were like, yeah, when are you going to have me on the podcast? I was like, dude, I didn't know you'd want to actually just come on by yourself. And you're like, yeah, I'd like to go on by myself. I didn't even say it. Aaron did it. Yeah, she did. It was a blank. She was like, thanks, (laughs) babe. That's so stupid. You should have just said something. I'm glad you did, though, because I'm glad you came in and we got to sit down and talk. 
Yeah, it's fun. You can come on whenever you want to, man. You just tell me whenever you feel like coming up and have shit you want to talk about, and we'll come in and we'll do it again. Well, I actually was going to do it with my dad the day we came up, and when we got here, I don't know, I kind of just sat down and I let him do his thing and was kind of just like okay with that. Well, it was a good way to kind of encapsulate, you know, some of the last. Yeah, I kind of just wanted to let him have his moment. Yeah, dude, he's a he's a great guy, man. And rest in peace. What a what an absolute beast of a guy. One of my favorite dudes. And uh, you know, I keep his sauerkraut crock pot recipe with me for the rest of my life. Now I, I know how to do it for real. Never fucking eat it, but <laughs> oink oink, I'm a pig. <laughs> That's a perfect end of the episode right there. All right. <laughs> That is a wrap on another episode of the Collaborate Eye podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making this episode for you. And now it's time for our favorite part of the show, the part where I beg you to please hit that like button, subscribe, and turn on those notifications so you never miss an episode. And don't be shy. Give us a shout out on social media at Collaborate Eye podcast on all the cool platforms to share your thoughts, your feedback, and your love. Until next time, Collaborate Eye, baby. Collaborate Eye.